I grew up in a family of four, and at times things can get a bit crazy. I remember my mom asking us in frustration, do you want people to think you were raised by wolves? The thing is, that really happened. It's not just some legend. There was this pioneer couple who settled in a remote area somewhere down south. When the woman went into labor, her husband left her alone to search for medical help. When he came back, his wife was dead from childbirth and the baby was missing. They assumed she was dragged off and killed by wildlife because there were teeth marks on the mother. But she wasn't dead. She was literally raised by wolves. She ran around on hands and feet like like an animal. She was seen hunting and eating prey with the wolves. The locals could hear her amongst the wolf cries at night, a cry that was more human scream than wolf howl. Some people at the time claimed they saw human-like wolf cubs, and I can't believe that's possible. They tried to capture her, but the wolf pack came to rescue her and she escaped. She lived her whole life amongst some wolves. Now, if you listen carefully, they say you can still hear the ghostly howls of the wolf girl. Crazy, right? It kind of makes me glad for my nice human parents. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to are telling you stories of the old... There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back everyone to the show. We're so glad to have you. Hi, how are you? You look lovely. I'm glad to see you've been keeping up with that thing you've been doing. Congratulations on that. You'll finish it one day. Don't worry. Take some time for yourself. You're not supposed to share your daily affirmations on the podcast. I'm just reading the post-it notes from the mirror, okay? Well, we do want to thank everybody that's come back and everyone that's reached out to us, whether that's leaving reviews on iTunes, such as Scarlet Wizard. We do appreciate that. And all the other people rating the show. You think she goes, Daddy, no more podcast. We can only hope. <laughs> we'll just be rebooted in a month anyway <laughs> with a number one issue. Woo-woo. Other ways to reach out to us are on Twitter, just a story pod, or on all the other forms of social media, such as Instagram and Facebook. You can also give us a call on the Urban Legend Hotline if you want to share one of your local urban legends or just want to talk, tell us about your day, whatever. That sounds great. Yeah, we've had people call just to say um, how awesome we are, so that's fine. We may start tacking those on at the end of the episode or something. <laughs> Daily affirmations, you know, you know. Yeah, Sam plays those every morning. <laughs> They go in my post-it note collection. Leave me alone. But that number is 512-222-3375. And it's going to cut you off after three minutes. Just keep calling back until you've said all you want to say. You're not bothering a soul. You can also check out our website at justastorypod.com. There you'll find lots of information on all of these show topics, including citations to lots of our sources, videos, uh, Sam's artwork for each episode. And you'll also there find links to our patreon patreon you say so if you would like to help support the show and get some fun interesting rewards such as exclusive stickers or virtual meetups or even the chance to come on the show also linked through our website is our merch merchy merch merch i designed some stuff 
and you can go and get it put on t-shirts or bags or shower curtains if you want. And that's another way that you can help support the Just A Story team. And that's just us guys here. Me too. <laughs> me too. It's me and yous. I thought you meant all the people in your head. Oh, no, no. I don't talk about the menagerie out loud. <laughs> so, back to the story at hand. It's quite a tall tale. Well, is it? Well, it's from Texas. So it's at least a big tale. Everything's bigger in Texas. So today we start off with a story about the Lobo Girl of Devil's River. That is an amazing name, and I hope she's a wrestler. She should be, right? Mm-hmm. And Devil's River is a real place. Of course it is. In Texas. Of course it is. Near the border. Yeah, of course it is. Did a little digging on this story. This story is has been around for a long time. Hey, it's in the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark book. Yes, it is. I've read it to our now six-year-old, freshly six. And it's a great one. It is a story about a feral child. A lobo girl, a wolf girl. A wolf girl. A girl raised by wolves. Which, I mean, people always say, I act like I was raised by wolves. Uh, people always tell me I act like I was raised in a barn and learned to whisper in a sawmill were the ones I got. But yeah, wolves. I'd say say yours was pretty accurate. Yeah. (laughs) So this story has been around for at least probably since it happened, maybe. I love stories that have been around since it happened, maybe. They're my favorites. Well, I was able to pull up a paper from 1937 by L.D. Bertillion from the Texas Folklore Society. Oh, good. Good. And he actually has some really great research. Supposedly has like firsthand accounts of things and verified accounts. So let's go into it. So this story. Alan Lomax was collecting them. Like, let's not. The first. The first. Alan Lomax, the first, was. was collecting. It's not like these people were, you know, pay, playing tiddlywinks and sipping tea all day like they had things to do and say they were credible academics so let's let's dispense with the salt and just take well, it, it as was, it's true it was it was published by smu yeah it's a place <laughs> it's a prestigious <laughs> university it's in dallas also known as the big hair do care capital of the world so our tale actually begins in georgia in 18. 18- 30. We have John Dent and Will Marlowe, and they were partners in fur trapping along the Chickamauga River. And they had set up a plan. They were going to work together, and at the end of the season, they'd sell all the furs and just split the profits down the middle. I can't see any way that this is possibly going to go wrong. Well, Mr. John Dent, as he was working near a farm one day, fell in love with a young girl named Molly Purtle. These names couldn't get much better. Lil Dent wanted to get himself married. He needs some money. So he, after the third year of working with Will Marlowe, decided to keep his share of the pelts and sell them separately, thinking he could make more money so that he could go and you know buy a little homestead, settle down. So he was not into share the wealth that year. He had his own agenda. He did. Miss Molly Purtle was on his mind. Which is, by the way, an excellent country song. No, it's not. I made that up. Well, maybe it could be a murder ballad. Oh, hold on one second. (laughs) Marlo. Did you just spoiler alert me? Maybe. So Marlo begins talking around town, 
saying that this John Dent character is no good, two-timing, yellow-bellied scum. Yellow-bellied, chicken-livered, lower-than-a-sap-sucker, snake's-belly something? I think you just mix like 10 analogies. Yes. Well, that's Southern for you. So after all this jabbering, eventually Dent and Marlowe got in a fight. Fisticuffs! Dent stabbed Marlowe. Not fisticuffs! To death. <laughs> Not fisticuffs! Murder. Murder. That's called murder. Second degree, but still murder. Maybe manslaughter, depending on the jury. Well, John Dent rushed home and told his beloved that he would find a place for them and come back for her. All right, so Molly Pirtle is sitting there going, okay, you've just murdered for me, so I guess I'm obligated. Sounds good to me. I'll get my hope chest. There might have been some swooning somewhere. Not (laughs) sure. So on April 13th of 1834. We have a date? Yes, and there is some actual documentation that these people existed. So several months later... On April 13th of 1834, Molly went out to milk the cows and never returned. Well, I mean, obviously she got caught up with the cows in the barn. You know, you know how that that can happen. So, of course, her family went out to investigate and only found the cows not milked. No! An empty milk pail. Molly. Other than a blood-caked bowie knife. Those Bowie knives were good for killing folk, weren't they? I mean, every time you hear one of these stories from that era, that was the weapon of choice. Oh, hell yes, big-ass knife. It's got a curved blade, too. Well, and this had a staghorn handle. Well, that is some serious shit. So they knew that this was Mr. John Dent's. Oh, Mr. John Dent was known to have a... Murder weapon. Murder weapon. He was known to have a stag-handled Bowie knife that Uh he oft-caked with blood of his enemies. At least one. Okay. So, of course, they searched the area and only found a place where a canoe had been stowed and pushed off with footprints. Six months later... Nobody or anything else, you mean? Nobody, nobody. Six months later, Miss Pirtle, Molly's mama, received a letter postmarked Galveston, Texas. And it said, Dear Mother, the devil has a river in Texas that is all his own. And is made only for those who are grown. Yours with love, Molly. A couplet. Right? <laughs> well, I guess it's real. I want to see the letter. I'm calling bullshit out of the gate because it didn't start with Dear Mama. Now, of course, people in Georgia didn't know there was actually a river named Devil's River in Texas. But there was a small colony called Dolores. That's what I call meatloaf. That's true. <laughs> I think meatloaf's an ugly name. Oh, I would do anything. <laughs> and this was a little settlement of English settlers. So mm-hmm. English speaking settlers, because there were also some Spanish speaking, like Mexican settlements here. Because remember, this was not the Republic or a great state of Texas yet. And Are you really telling me the Texas lineage when you know that my people have been here for 300 years <laughs> and before? Speaking of your people, the English speaking settlers were quickly dispatched by the Comanches. Those Johnny-come-latelys. But the Dents had settled upriver from the town, you know, where they would be doing their fur trapping. And, you know, it's it's kind of supposed that maybe he had a little bit of a agreement with the Comanches. Yeah, it's not unheard of. No, it's not at all. Especially independent 
outfits like that, like one guy, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just him and his wife, his wife, who was pregnant. Oh my goodness, no. In May of 1835, a rider rode up to a goat ranch owned by some Mexican settlers. He was obviously in distress and said that his wife was giving birth to a baby and that they needed help. So the woman agreed to come and he quickly rode back to be with his wife as they got on their way. This is the the lady goat rancher. Yeah. Okay. And as they were on their way, of course, a great storm is a brewing. Of course, dark and stormy night ensues. Cue drama. So they were unable to get to the camp very quickly, lost their way, couldn't go over the river. They couldn't ford the river, like an Oregon Trail. Seven of your passengers died. Yeah, they didn't lose an axle or anything. Yeah. So the next morning they came to the camp, but they only found the woman who was alone, dead, and under an open brush arbor. No sign of the man, no sign of the baby. Was there a Bowie knife? Not discussed. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. So they thought, felt that she probably died during childbirth. Some versions of the tale, not this one, state that the man was struck by lightning on the way back. But not in this version. That would be terribly unlucky. The Mexican goat ranchers, which would also be a great name for... A wrestler. A wrestler. The Mexican goat rancher. They also saw... Some Lobo tracks nearby. I can translate that. Wolf tracks. Well, Lobo is a type of wolf. So it's like a specific type of wolf to the area. I had no idea. Now you do. So they felt that the wolves might have eaten the infant. And in the home, they found a letter addressed to Miss Pertle, Molly's mama. Pertle the elder. And that's how they were able to identify the people. And this is like supposedly newspaper supported, this part of it? Supposedly. I mean, there are no links to the papers, and we couldn't find the papers, but it's something that was told very frequently. And he also cites, like, reports that were not verified. Mm-hmm. Like, that were more gossipy. Uh, okay. Because he's differentiating. Exactly. I think from this point, from this point from prior, probably accurate. Okay. Probably a real story. Maybe not the letter, the rhyming couplet. Probably not. I think from here on is when we start to... Enter story territory. Yeah, get a little bit tale. So in 1845, that's 10 years later, we have a boy living at San Felipe Springs, which is now Del Rio, Texas, near Devil's River. So he was out one day, and he saw a pack of lobo wolves attacking a herd of goats. And with them was a creature with long black hair that looked like a naked girl. So this just... Couldn't be the imaginings of a pubescent boy. Well, so at this time, most people did think that. Yeah. They were like, oh, yeah. All right, kiddo. Yeah, I'm sure you saw naked yeah, girls I'm running sure with wolves. Uh-huh. Yeah. So did I when I was your age, kiddo. Uh-uh, you need to head over to the <laughs> brothel. Uh, no, <laughs> you need to go milk some cows. This isn't New England. This is Texas. You're right. You're we right. have brothels. <laughs> You're right. No, we have, we have chicken ranches and cat houses. Get it right, sir. Get it right. So a year later, a Mexican woman claimed to see her. And there were a few other sightings as well, including Indians reporting seeing barefoot tracks in sandy places along the river. 
including handprints. So people began to connect this mysterious naked wolf girl with the missing infant of Molly Dent just 10 years prior. You know, not much is going on. Mm. (laughs) That was still very fresh in people's minds. So once all this gets linked together, some Mexican vaqueros organized a hunt for the girl. So as they were hunting around Devil's River on the third day, they found her. Bullshit. Supposedly. Bullshit, mama. They cornered her, and she was with a large lobo wolf. This is a great quote from it. At first, she cowered like a rabbit. Then she spat and hissed like a wild cat. She fought, too, clawing and biting. While the vaqueros were tying her, she began to belch forth pitiful, frightful, unearthly sounds described as resembling both the scream of a woman and the howl of a lobo, but being neither. Oh, my goodness. So as they were tying her down, Monster Lobo rushes towards them, and they shoot him dead. They shoot the Monster Lobo. Yes. Does he transform back into a man? Another episode. Okay, fine. So after capturing this young wolf girl, she was brought to a small ranch house and put up in a boarded room. And they were going to bring her into town later, supposedly. Like, nailed her into a room? Yeah. Oh, as you do. So as she was trapped in there, she began to make unearthly howls. We're back to the unearthly sounds again. Right. It's a recurring theme here. One element of the story that definitely makes me go, uh, this part's not real. She was described as being very hairy, but also having breasts of beautiful curvature. Are we back to the pubescent boys account? No, this is the Vic Arrows. Okay. Remember, at this time, if she was the daughter of Molly Dent, she would be 11. And in a, just, uh, sorry, Dr. Brain, for like two seconds... If she was in this kind of malnourished, feral state, she wouldn't have hit puberty yet. Either this is not the Dent girl, this is some other child that went missing, or this is a some embellishment from a bunch of guys that have been put up in a little bunk room with a bunch of other guys for too long. Exactly. So as she was making these unearthly howls, they were soon answered by the deep howls of the Lobos from beyond. Holy shit. So the men began to gather together. They were getting a little scared. And then they started to hear the cries of their domestic animals mixed with the numerous howls and snarls of the lobos. So the the lobos are staging a campaign of warfare against the cows that were so dearly loved by the vaqueros and the goats which were ranched so thoroughly in this area. Yes. Oh my the rancheros and the vaqueros, ran to the other animals to try to protect them, shot into the darkness, couldn't see anything. Dude, if this were like 50 years later, this would be an alien story. Right. And the wolves retreated. In the meantime, when they came back to the house, they found that the lobo girl had escaped. She had pried off one of the boards from the windows and gotten out. But the next morning, they could not find any tracks so mass hysteria, what are we thinking here? Well, she was seen numerous times since. In 1852, a group of frontiersmen claimed to see a young woman nursing wolf cubs on the banks of the Devil's River. There's so many problems with that story. So many problems. It really, like, I didn't want to do a big thing on it, but it touches on 
some of the things we talked about in the Jersey Devil episode in Bestiality, saying that they did have wolves, human-like faces running around. Well, again, you've got wide open frontier and you know omnipresent threats from the natural world. You're yeah. gonna get that weird people having sex with animals and making weird hybrids thing apparently is the natural symptom. Apparently so. But you know now, if you go out to Devil's River at night... You see La Llorona. No. No. You can see the spirit. Of the headless horseman that was tied to his horse. Well, that one too. But his buddy is, of course, the Lobo Girl of Devil's River. Another dynamic duo. And you can see her spirit, or maybe you'll just hear her unearthly cries. Right, right. So this is history. (laughs) Very much history. Yay, history and facts. We have those. So nobody ever thought, like, maybe her dad just absconded with her and took her to the local Comanches with which he had a trading treaty, and they raised her. Ooh, me, I thought that. (laughs) Okay. Right, I think the first half of the story is close to truth well i mean i think there may have been a dead lady laying under some trees there's some truth in us there yeah in our new modern day trump field world <laughs> this is true but the rest is most likely just a story so in the trump filled world truth is just whatever everyone's screaming the loudest so the whole second half could technically be true well unearthly noises right right yeah <laughs> but The ideas that are present in this story, the idea of a feral child, is not new. No, that one's as old as Methuselah. So a feral child can be very loosely defined as a human child that has been isolated from human contact. And sometimes these children are raised by wolves. Or other animals. Lots of other animals, apparently. Yes. Yes, it can be anything. But what I found most interesting about the concept of the wild man or the feral child is that when old Linnaeus... Are you familiar with Linnaeus? Have you ever heard of this fellow? Linnaeus? Of course I have. Linnaeus invented taxonomy. Oh, just that. When he originally classified man in his taxonomy, he had seven different category oh man oh that is another episode right but except for one we're gonna talk about one right now okay and it was homo ferus and he defined that as the wild man or homo feri consists purely of individual instances of feral child linnaeus further divides the subspecies of humankind into nine examples so one looked like a bear one looked like a wolf one looked like a sheep. One looked what like an that one looked like eyes. Curly hair. He had like nice curly hair. Are you calling me a sheep? You would be a black sheep. That's accurate. <laughs> one looked like an ox. I assume he had horns. And then they stopped looking like things and just get found places after that. He went on to say that these instances of wild men and their similarities are partly to be attributed to imposture and part to exaggeration. Most probably idiots who have strayed away from their friends and who resembled the above animals only in imitating their voices. Oh, I know. But Henry Conrad Koning 
traces the relation of the feral child to the ideas of the state of nature, especially with regards to the idea of natural law. So Linnaeus's taxonomy is taking shape at the time with some other very interesting notions about mankind are rumbling around in the collective consciousness. Right. I mean, this is the age of discovery. This is when we have science. Science. Making its grand debut. And then making terrible decisions. Terrible decisions. It's like a teenager who wasn't ready for their debutante ball. The Blumenbach asserts that man is a domestic animal. The animal that has domesticated itself. For this reason, feral instance of a human being would reveal nothing about the essential nature of humanity. If a pet dog is taken back into the wilds, it will return to its wild nature, because that nature is somehow contained within its domesticated self. Blumenbach argues that a human being, similarly placed in the wild and savage environment, would not simply return to an essential feral nature imagined as located within the history of the human. So I found an interesting thesis written about feral children by Michael Newton called The Child of Nature, The Feral Child and the State of Nature. Among the ideas that he puts forward is the idea that the collective perception of prehistory and mankind's place in the universe can kind of be read on the documentation, rumor, and tale of feral children. Right, and you have to think of what they were trying to say. Or what are people representing when they discuss feral children? I mean, it's hard not to like tie it into that idea of the noble savage. Well, it absolutely was. This was, you have to remember, this was an age of revolution. Everyone was revolutionizing. There was the Americas. There was the Frances. There was the all of it. Everybody was overthrowing governments, starting over age of enlightenment, big ideas, etc., etc. There was so much political strife, living conditions where poor people were moving into cities. You have the urban horde. You have this separation from that pastoral life that happens as people move into cities. You have people who aren't seeing trees ever for the first time in history. I mean, yeah, I know not everywhere has trees, but not seeing nature. And so there's this notion that we are separating ourselves from our nature right that this feral children or even the noble savages represent the real humans right these are the pure uncorrupted state you know a lot of times they're seen as like stronger and sometimes, especially in the noble savage, they can be very intelligent. And they could even have morals that are greater than that compared to the normal humans. Yes, because we have been so denigrated and our minds so pillaged by social structure and politics and artificial ideas. Apparently we're going to return to nature every like 30 or 40 years. Yeah, it's what we're going to do. It's going to be a thing. Of course, now returning to nature is just getting your bespoke mason jars from the man who sells barn wood and paints fish watercolors while he twirls his mustache. But, you know, same thing. Typewriters of nature. So as we've mentioned, the idea of feral children has been around forever. Forever, ever? Ever, ever. So, I mean, the classic example that one thinks of when they're thinking of a feral child or even someone raised by wolves 
Ooh, Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus were the twin sons of Rhea Silvea and Mars. So when's this? Like a god? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Hybrids. So the man who usurped her father's throne found out that she was pregnant. Oh, she did. Mm -hmm. Oh, she did. And once she had those twin boys, he ordered her to be buried alive and the children to be killed. But we get a Snow White moment, don't we? Well, we kind of get a Bible moment. Oh, well. So a servant took pity on the children and placed them in a basket on the Tiber River. Tiberinus, the river god, also also took pity on them and brought them to shore. They were a very pitiable pair, this air and a spare she managed to create moments before she was buried alive. Air and a spare? Oh, yeah. fantastic. It's a that's a thing. That's a, that's thing. a real thing. You didn't just come up with. No, that? I wish I had. You should have claimed that. I was giving it to you. It's been around since like the eighties. Since Diana had Harry, is when it like really became prominent again. I'm sure it's old. So a she wolf finds them and raises them until they are toddlers. When they are then adopted by a shepherd and then you know like found Rome. Oh, just that. You know the Eternal City. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. And through time, there are many, many more examples, especially in this older mythology, such as the infancy of Semiramis, the founder of Babylon, who was fostered by birds. I would not want to be raised by birds. Like, I would rather nurse from a wolf than be vomited up food parts in my mouth. I'm just saying. Like, I'm going on record now. If anybody's listening, reincarnation, etc. I would rather bird vomit than death. No, no, I'm good. <laughs> but then you find another great city in civilization. Oh, good. We, of course, have Oedipus, who was lamed and left in the wilderness. The twins, Amphion and Zethos, who were the sons of Zeus and eventually were the founders of Thebes, who were forsaken on a mountainside. Where they were suckled by some kind of mammal, probably a platypus. I think it was a platypus. It was. And then, of course, Paris. France. Troy. Ah, prophecy, child born, would be the fall of the city, ordered everybody to die. He was abandoned on the slopes of Mount Ida, where for five days he was suckled by a bear. A bear! That's a new one. What a twist. And then in the Middle Ages, you start to really get the idea of the wild man, who was always roaming through the woods, waiting to eat your children or whatever. Good on him. And you have ideas like swan children, which is a whole other episode. But I'm quite fond of swan children because I'm quite fond of our daughter's name. Odette? Yes. yes. The swan princess? Yes. Not Aunt Dean. (laughs) Sometimes I think she's the black swan. She has a romance. All right. And then we move into some of the more modern, oft dramatically portrayed characters of the feral child tradition. And chief among them, I believe, is Mowgli. Oh, I saw the Disney movie. Everyone saw the Disney movie. The Beatles are vultures, and he wears a red diaper. All right, so the Jungle Book. Yes. Of course, this was written by Rudyard Kipling. And Kipling had really interesting notions about colonialism and imperialism. He was a British man living in India. Correct. With a fantastic mustache. Yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah, it's good. But among his contributions to society are that mustache, the Jungle Book, and the poem 
white man's burden, which is one of the most controversial pieces of his canon. And it is a poem that was written in 1899, and it was about the U.S. involvement in the Philippines. And he wrote the poem because he recognized that there was this massive moral duty of the colonizing countries to kind of be good stewards of the people who, you know, lived there before. He wrote about the white man's burden, and it's become such a trope and such a joke. I would never have guessed there was actually a poem. Like, it's that ubiquitous in culture. So here's a a stanza. Take up the white man's burden. Have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy, ungrudged praise. I have so much guilt right now. You should have all the guilt. You should. It's one of those things, looking back now, you're like, oh my God. But you're like, wow, this is like the one guy that was like, uh, hey, um, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but he was like, hey, um, maybe we shouldn't be complete assholes. No, he was. And like he I feel like this is a little bit mocking too. I feel like it's I don't feel like it's tongue in cheek. I would not go that far. But he's saying like you were just handed this and you're not taking it seriously and you need to stop and consider that these are people that are going to hate you. Like the poem actually says like the people you guard will hate you. Which is a kind of progressive idea. Yeah, a little truth there. A little little kernel of truth. But my god, white man's burden is just so rife for lampooning. But then in the Jungle Book, you have the, to our minds, to our modern minds, sort of that archetypical feral child who is more noble, stronger, more resilient. Can sing and dance. Can, like, get down with some jazz in the monkey temple. Yeah, some Louis Prima, man. Come on. All right, man cub, listen up. So he uses this child to examine... A morality almost constructed in a secular space, which is interesting. And he looks at the values that seem to be universal, even among the animal kingdom. And so some interesting quotes from the Jungle Book when discussing why Mowgli wasn't eaten right away. The reasons the beasts give among themselves is that man is the weakest and most defenseless of all living things and is unsportsmanlike to touch him. Which is, of course, like mocking the idea that man just goes out and kills everything. Right. And another quote from the book is, And he grew and grew strong as a boy must grow, who does not know that he is learning lessons, and who has nothing in the world to think except things to eat. Ah, he is returning to his true nature. Yes. The true nature of man. Who does not realize he's learning lessons. I think that's something that you see again and again. Like, the, the world could teach you everything you learn in school. If you just befriend Baloo and dance with King Louie, you'll learn it all. Watch out for Shere Khan. (laughs) He's kind of a dick. Moving on to a movie that proves that Phil Collins is no Louis Prima. We come to Tarzan. They were like, people like Elton John. People like Phil Collins. And Elton John goes, oh, bitch, please. Don't you think he said that? I think he said that. Like, did he say that ever? No, about Phil (laughs) Collins when he like saw the first release. He was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So Tarzan was written by... Edgar Rice Burroughs. We discussed him in our Indiana Jones episode. He was a great writer of adventure stories. But Tarzan had a little bit of a philosophical heft to it. He had some heavy ideas mixed in with these 
ridiculous and fantastical adventure slash what could be called science fiction slash what could be called romance yeah yeah stories an interesting thing about Edgar Rice Burroughs stories is that he kind of invents a language throughout his series of Tarzan novels and it's something called Mangani and it is the language of the apes it's also the name of the type of ape that he lives with. Anyway, in the book, they call it the language of the first man. And Tarzan theorizes that this is the basic foundation language of all creatures. And of course, he has the classic line later, whenever he meets Jane. Yowza. Saying, teach me to speak the language of men. Not sure if he was talking about English there. I'm not sure. You think he meant it in the like biblical sense? In a back-to-nature sense. Oh, spicy. I've seen that loincloth. I've seen Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> I can support that. But there's definitely this idea of first means best running throughout the Tarzan series. And it's something that you see in lines like, Men are indeed more foolish and more cruel than the beast of the jungle. How fortunate was he who lived in the peace and security of the great forest. Never mind that you might step on a bug and die. <laughs> you know, like the wrong poison bug could kill you. Oh, but he knew about that. And he learned it. Right. Without knowing he learned it. Oh my God, it's so much better. You're right. Let's not have air conditioning and poop outside. And then, of course, in another romance-esque line, Jane says, Beast? Then God make me a beast. For man or beast, I am yours. It's a little spicy. I know. I didn't think I was going to have to put an explicit on this episode. <laughs> I know. Well, just <laughs> wait till the leopard loincloth falls off. And then you see, again, this really conscious interaction with the theme of birthright and our history proving that we are worthy to wear the mantle of king of the beast. And that comes through here when we read, Hundreds of thousands of years ago, our ancestors of the dim and distant past faced the same problems which we must face, possibly in the same primeval forest. That we are here today is evidence of their victory. What they did may we not do, and even better, for are we not armed with ages of superior knowledge, and have we not the means of protection, defense, and sustenance which science has given us, but of which they were totally ignorant. What they accomplished with instruments and weapons of stone and bone, surely that we may accomplish also. Yeah, just so romanticizing those ideas, those, those ideas of just going back to nature and all this modern technology. Right, like if just we could, ruining us. If we could do it with stones and bones, we can do it with guns, germs, and steel, goddammit. Ooh, pause and go read that book. <laughs> and the Tarzan books, if you're bored. And, you know, the Jungle Book. Yeah. And it's all right. Just so stories is good, too. There's one about a cat. And, of course, we can't talk about fake feral children without bringing it back to Texas and Pecos Bill. Well, if I know anything about Texas, this is going to be more unbelievable and far-fetched than even the bear suckling. So, Pecos Bill was born in Texas in the 1830s, 
are sometimes 1845, which is... The year that Texas became a state. Of course. And Pecosville family was moving out of town because it was becoming too crowded. Right. They had neighbors like seven miles away or something. It was way too close. Yeah. I know people who do that now, so... So the family was traveling in a covered wagon when the infant fell off unnoticed by the rest of the family near the Pecos River. He was taken in and raised by a pack of coyotes. But years later, as he was roaming around all fours, howling and scratching, he was found by his real brother who recognized him and okay. managed to convince him that he was not a coyote, but he was a man. Oh, easy peasy lemon squeezy. And he went by the name Pecos Bill. Now, Pecos Bill was a cowboy. He used a rattlesnake named Shake as a lasso and another snake as a little whip. His horse, who did have a name, a widow maker. And he was called that because he, of course, tamed this wild horse and Mm -hmm. no other man could ride him. So he'd made a lot of widows before Pecos Bill managed to tame him, correct? Exactly. Logic. And, of of course, dynamite was his favorite food. (laughs) He lassoed a twister. And he wrestled the bear like monster. Now, <laughs> of course, these stories are fun and ridiculous. And I love to read them to the kids. Slewfoot Sue. Yeah, it did, yes. And she wrote a catfish. Yes, we <laughs> must love Slewfoot Sue. And supposedly these were oral tradition passed on by cowboys. But this is actually fake lore. Oh, no. Why'd you do it to me, sir? Sorry. They were written by Edward S. O'Reilly in the early 20th century. Sorry. So enough of this fake stuff. Oh, is there ever enough fake stuff? I think that here we really honor the idea that the fake is just as important as the real because it's the fact that's repeated that makes it interesting. Right. It keeps coming up and keeps coming up because these ideas are so important. And that's, I mean, that's just a through line through everything we talk about really yep that's our job that's what we do here so let's get to some real cases of feral children there are real cases of feral children l'enfant sauvage yes so let's start with in india there is a long-standing tradition of wolf children in india there are the idea of wolf children is very common so in 1926 joseph Amrido lal singh was a rector at a local orphanage, and he published an account in the paper in Calcutta of two feral girls who had been raised by wolves that were given to him by a man who lived near the jungle. Now, these feral girls were named Amala and Kamala, and they became all the rage. Really? Everyone was talking about them. So, like, national publication and newspapers, probably international. Probably, yeah. I think in the UK they found out about it. Mm -hmm. Very interested in it. It was later found out, actually, to be a hoax. I thought we were done with fake stuff. I tricked you. Uh, Sorry. uh, It's interesting because you can still read online that this is a real story. Even today? Even today. Well, why? Okay. Cursory Wikipedia search. Why would anyone fake this? What is there to gain by faking feral kids? Well, he was getting press and it helped him get funding for his orphanage. Okay, that's actually a really decent reason to fake feral kids. Right, but he took these two kids that were either somehow disabled or autistic and used them for that purpose. That is no worse than what P.T. Barnum did for entertainment. 
At least he was funding an orphanage. Now we're going to move on to Hamlin. Are we doing the Pied Piper story? No, but we will, as we say about every story. So this is a story of Peter the Wild Boy. Peter was found alone and naked, as most children who live in the woods are. Contrary to the Disney depiction, they were not passing out red diapers. And he was discovered in 1725 near Hamlin, Germany. And Peter walked on all fours. He fed on grass and leaves. And he could scurry up trees quite quickly. And he would when people approached him. He could not speak, which is another hallmark of feral children. The following year, he was brought to London by King George I. And he kind of became this twisted human pet at the Kensington Palace. Gotta love this time period. <laughs> so oh, terrible. Oh my god. The human rights violations just waft off of it. As soon as you read the year, you're like, shit. It's gonna be bad. And it was speculated that he had been raised by wolves or bears because mythology. No, because you know these are big mammals who could have potentially taken care of him and been his protectors. Well, it's kind of like that tradition through medieval period, this wild man raised by wolves. Slash bears, bears or, yeah. Yeah. Platypi, which is actually not right. It's platypuses, which I'm very disappointed about. It's also octopuses. I know. Thanks, Science Versus. Check them out, by the way. Awesome show. And he ate with his hands, and he really didn't like clothes, but I know plenty of people who don't like clothes, so I'm not really thinking that's too remarkable. No matter what they did, which I would love to know what they did, they could not teach him to speak. Now, he was included in a royal portrait. So there was a, a massive depiction of the court painted by one William Kent. And you can see Peter the Wild Boy kind of in the background. Now, if this is an accurate depiction and not one influenced by, you know, perceptions of his character, etc., it's a very interesting portrait. Because you can see that he has short stature, thick curly hair, hooded eyelids, a cupid's bow mouth with a pronounced curve of the upper lip. And these are indicative of Pitt Hopkins syndrome. Which is a thing. It's a super rare disorder. And it really might be reaching, kind of trying to name it this. But it's interesting that he might have had this actual chromosomal genetic disorder that would have caused him to be not only mentally disabled, but also physically disabled and have difficulty like walking and with fine motor skills and things like that. So they may have just kidnapped somebody's kid. Well, he was probably, you know, abandoned because they knew there was something wrong with him. Which is a thing that happened. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. It's horrible. But it's the thing that happened. Now, you have to remember that Peter the Wild Boy was discovered during the Age of Enlightenment, as we've discussed. And there were big ideas floating about. So Peter sort of became a central focus in the debate about what it means to be human, which was all the rage at the moment, which I don't know if you know this, but scholars, they argue, they argue. And the debate was, what does it mean to be human? Just small questions, you know, small potatoes. But I mean, like we talked about in other episodes, like once you start investigating nature, in the world, you can't help but go to the next step of where do we fit into all of this? Why just us? And if you take the God thing out, which was kind of happening at the time, if you start looking more to science and more to rational, reasonable, 
secular. You have to go, well, it's weird that we're people. It's not a God-given right, you know? So, Peter the Wild Boy was actually written about by Jonathan Swift. Through at Gulliver's Travels, he also wrote... A Modest Proposal. And that's more what his writing on Peter was like. Now, there's a piece on him, a satirical piece on Peter, that is that they think was written by Jonathan Swift. And then you have Daniel Defoe. Who wrote Robinson Crusoe. Right, with The Good Man Friday. A noble savage, if ever there was one. So supposedly they both wrote pamphlets on him, but Defoe is confirmed, definitely, truly did write about Peter the Wild Boy. Defoe wrote Mere Nature Delineated, published in 1726. And he said that Peter should be an object of pity, but he wasn't sure about the stories surrounding his origins. They sounded very romanticized. And he kind of said, I think it's a fib. Quote. Fib. Who's calling him out? <laughs> I want to call some fibs out. You, sir. You are a fibber I, of the worst kind. I challenge you to a duel. Fisticuffs? I have my bowie knife. No! On the issue of Peter's soul, he was more charitable. He said that he possessed a gift of laughter and thought Peter clearly had a soul. He wrote, but its powers did not yet act within him. He was this, in sum... In a state of mere nature, a ship without a rudder, and it was the task of his tutors to bring him to the use of his reason. There's so many things capitalized unnecessarily in all of these quotations. I found this part interesting because there's this tenant when looking at children with disabilities, and you know, there's there's always ethical discussions. One side, side I fall on, you know, says. Well, of course, children with disabilities, you know, should be allowed to you know, be born, etc. That's charitable. Well, no, but it says, like, if they can experience joy, then they can have a happy, fulfilled life. And I think that's such a great way of defining it. You know, you're not going, oh, can they be a productive member of society? Can they have a job? Can they... Let's face it, I'm not a productive member of society. Like, that's a really high bar. <laughs> I mean, just something like that. It's like, can they be happy? Can they laugh? And even just back in the day, Defoe's like, he can laugh. Of course he has a soul. He can, he can laugh. Human. Yeah. I think it's amazing. It's an ancient idea. We'll talk about that later. For another day. So he deferred the final verdict on Peter. Therefore, until the results of his education became apparent. If he could receive instruction, if he could be taught to heed his soul, then he would become a man. And what was more... He would be a lesson to us all, especially, wrote Defoe, to those who think nobody so wise as themselves. Calling them out again. Fibbers and know-it-alls. Look out. You're on notice. Now, eventually they got bored of him, as courts are wont to do, and they retired him like a jersey. (laughs) And they retired him to Hertfordshire Farm. They didn't send him to the farm like your family sent your old dog, though. Are we sure? Yes. How sure? Very sure. Because he lived. Well, okay, I guess we are sure because for one thing, there's the collar. A collar. (laughs) Yes, yes, a collar. Because, you know, he had a habit of running away. So naturally, what do you do if you have something you want to keep that wants to run away? Like a dog put a collar on him with a tag? Yes. Lovely. He has a, a 
leather collar and it has like a big gold engraved tag on it. It exists. You can see it. And the collar had an inscription on it that read, Peter the Wild Man of Hanover, whoever will bring him to Mr. Finn at Berkhamstead shall be paid for their trouble. Lovely. This is the equivalent of pinning a note to your kid's shirt and sending him to school. Peter lived until he was 70 years old. He's buried and has a headstone that's engraved with his name, Peter the Wild Man, which apparently was his name. Another great wrestling name. Oh, you're right. He was taken care of by the monarchy throughout the reign of three different monarchs. And to his credit, Peter did learn to say two things. His name, Peter, and King George. So fuck those other two guys. <laughs> King George, Peter, King George, Peter. That's all I got, guys. Come back again tomorrow. He knew who his meal ticket was. Right, right. So another interesting case of a feral child is the savage girl of Champagne. So this concurred in France and on September of 1731. A girl emerged from the woods, armed with a club, (laughs) barefoot, had a scanty dress of rags and skins, was, quote, dark as a Negro, and searching for water. So she was going to club some water out of some stuff. Well, I think she was probably using the club to kill animals, not water. You'd be a really bad feral child. (laughs) I would, actually. So there were several attempts to catch her, but she would quickly... Scamper up a tree and hide. Apparently, tree climbing was big among the feral child set. Well, I think it's something that we're naturally adept at. I don't know. I've seen Remy try to climb a tree. He's not naturally adept at that. So there were several attempts to catch her. Eventually, a wise, wise man. Came out of the woods. Mansplained some things. Oh. And they decided to bring some women and children out to try to offer food and water to the savage girl mm-hmm. so that she wouldn't be scared. Oh, she was afraid because they were men. According to this guy. According to some dude. And so was she, it Freud? Was he like, she has penis in me and she will never be right? Probably so. So they eventually did get her down and they brought her to the kitchen of the Chateau Viscount d'Epony. And when she was there... She was in the kitchen, and the cook was dressing some fowl for dinner. Oh, in little hats and coats. Yeah. You would be such a good feral child. And she immediately pounced on them and started to eat the birds raw. Oh, yuck. So whenever... <laughs> I would be the worst feral child ever. That confirms it. <laughs> yep. So whenever Tepany arrived and saw what was happening, he ordered her to be given a rabbit, which she quickly skinned and ate. With her bare hands. She's a witch. No. Are we past witches? No, there are witches. Okay. In the 1700s. I'm surprised she was not burned. She was too much of a curiosity. Okay, fine. But she didn't understand French. And well, who does? And after being washed several times, they were surprised to find that she was white. <laughs> Good news, guys. Good news. We bleached her. So she was described as having large, strong hands. She also had some other interesting features. She wore a necklace with pendants and a pouch fixed to a large animal skin wrapped around her waist that held a club and a small knife with strange characters on it. So she was fashionista. Well, she was baptized in 1732 and given the name of Marie-Angelique Mamie Leblanc, and she learned French rapidly over the next 10 years. 
She lived in a series of convents. Uh, Now, since she learned French, she could tell her story. And she said that she must have been only seven or eight years of age when she had been snatched away from her own country, which she could not remember. She had, she said, been put aboard a great ship and carried off to a warm country where she was painted black and sold into slavery. So she was with many other black slaves on the ship, and she befriended one. Even though they couldn't speak, they kind of learned a way to communicate with each other. Now the ship was wrecked, and her and her friend swam to shore. They traveled long distances by land and worked together to be able to, you know, catch animals, find things to eat, find water. And they developed a way to communicate using, like, signs and wild cries. Now, they eventually got in a fight (laughs) where she actually hit her with a club. But actually, after taking care of her, they separated ways. And after struggling for a little while and wondering is whenever she came upon the town. And was taken in. So she was not feral long. Well, I think she was, but not for like years and years. She was became feral very late in life, which is... Compared to other feral children. Right, different than what we hear. And she also is the only case of someone completely learning language. Well, she already knew language. Right. That's, where, that's kind of the, the So she learned line. a second language. Like if this were a contemporary account... We probably wouldn't think of her as a feral child. We would probably think of her as a kidnap victim who survived an ordeal, right? Like the the terminology and the thinking on it would be very different. There are lots of cases like this over time. Right. She wouldn't. Well, but she did live like out in the wilderness for an extended period of time. But you're right. She's not exactly like a completely feral child. She's not raised by wolves. Was anybody? Lobos. I mean, besides her. Lois. All right, so let's move forward in time just a, just a smidge and stay in France. Because the weather's nice here. Apparently, this is where all the Savage children are. L'enfant Savage. So, around 1794, near saint sernin people started reporting seeing a naked kid running through the woods. And in 1797, three hunters spotted him. And they were able to catch him, even though he climbed a tree. And they brought him to a nearby town, where he was cared for by a widow. However, crafty little bugger, he escaped. And he was spotted throughout 1798-99. And people would try to catch him, and he would run away, and it was a thing. But on January 8th of 1800, he came out of the woods on his own. A wise boy emerged from the woods to grant us all enlightenment. He granted us enlightenment? Did he have secrets? Was this like the green children? Yes, very much. People expected it to be. So that action is very important, and it's going to kind of set the tone for people's interpretation of what this child means for the world. His coming out of the woods was perceived by many as a contract. So like he was coming out of nature into the modern human world to grant us his primordial, primeval knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it was estimated that he was about 12 years old. Because what can't we learn from a 12-year-old boy? Every name of every Pokemon. (laughs) That is what we can learn. I said, what can't we learn? Mm. Everything else. Everything else is the answer. And it was believed that he'd been in the woods for most of his life. He had a number of scars and 
facility with moving around in nature that just lent to that ideation. He was examined by a local physician who was also an abbot and a professor of biology named Pierre-Joseph Bonaterre. And at the time, a government official in the town wrote, something extraordinary is in his behavior, which makes me see him as close to the state of wild animals. And he was taken to Rodis, where two men traveled to see if he was possibly maybe their son. They were separate entities, separate families, who had both lost a son in the French Revolution. And they believed he could still be alive. The location and age worked out, whatever. So they go, and they're going to go see the boy and be reunited. But when they saw him, they were both like, nah, it's not him. My son is not a savage. I just think it's interesting, like, how long ago would this have been to account for... I mean, it has to be at least before 1794 when the sightings started that they've lost their kids. And so they think that they're going to recognize... I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And that they didn't think it was him. Like, this seems like it would be the perfect opportunity for one of those, like, yeah, it's totally him. I'll take him home. And uh, it's not him two weeks later. Right. Or I'll take him and I'll go exhibit him. Yeah. They didn't. He was then taken to the National Institute for the Deaf in Paris. Even though he seemed to be able to hear, he did not respond to sounds. And people wanted to study him and see, you know, what secrets this young boy had for us. So again, like that age of enlightenment, we're going to discover the true knowledge, the true humanity through studying this savage boy. So... Interestingly, the first anthropological society in Paris had been founded the year previous, and they were known as the Society of Observers of Man, which is a fantastic name. Sounds fancier in French. I'm sure it does, but they were basically like, we people watch. Ooh, we should start this. Haven't we? If you want to join our club. The Society of the Observers of Man and Woman and Child and Weird People. And they believe that by studying as well as educating the boy, they would gain the proof they needed for the recently popularized empiricist theory of knowledge. In the context of the Enlightenment, when many were debating what exactly distinguished man from animal, one of the most significant factors was the ability to learn language. By studying the boy, they would also be able to explain the relationship between man and society. So they were going to try to teach him language. Oh, yes. So they could learn. Yes. Because how can he tell us what we need to know if he can't speak our language? And how can we prove that man is truly superior if there's a man among us who cannot learn language? We needed that line between us and animals. So he was examined by very famous, well-known physicians upon his arrival in Paris. And they quickly dismissed him as a congenital idiot and wanted nothing more to do with him. So this once prized possession that was to be the delight of the observers of man, was shooed away, and that opened the door for a 26-year-old medical student to come and take up the care of this treasure. Awesome. Our medical student hero. He kind of is. He's a really, really interesting character. His name was Jean-Marc Gaspard Etard. Say that ten times fast. And he basically adopted him. He brought the boy into his home and decided that he was going to civilize and educate this wild boy. And the child would not respond to many sounds, loud sounds, whatever. But he noticed that whenever he made the sound, oh, the child would turn to him. And so he gave him a name incorporating that sound, Victor. And so the child was named Victor. And he showed significant early progress in understanding language and reading simple words. But he did not progress beyond a rudimentary level. Itar 
really innovated some interesting notions about education, some pedagogical practices which are still used today. And he made a lot of progress with the boy. It was kind of working in a vacuum without a lot of experience. He is 26 years old. He's supporting himself as a general physician during the day and like working on his studies in philosophy, psychology, language, kind of the more humanitarian side of medicine at night. The idea that he was able to kind of generate this very intricate system of education is phenomenal. He's a very creative mind. Some of the techniques that he used are still used today. Now, some are even used still like in kindergarten Mm -hmm. just to teach neuronormative kids. But also, he's kind of the founder of special education, of education of mentally and even physically disabled children. I mean, he completely revolutionized the idea. You know, these were not kids that needed to be thrown in an asylum. If you spent enough time and effort with them, they could learn a lot. Right, and he is considered the founder of oral education of the deaf, which is a very big title. And Attar was a firm believer that the rights of man, which was a very popular talking point at the time. Inalienable rights? Sort of. I think I've heard of this. Well, some of the contemporaries that were writing things like declarations at the time might have, you know, mentioned it. But it was a popular talking point and defined as rights held to be justifiably belonging to any person. Basic human rights. And the phrase is associated with de- the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the, of the Citizen, which was adopted by the French National Assembly in 1789. And it's used in the preface of the French Constitution. But we were, we were big on granting rights to all people except the ones we owned. We don't really want to talk about that. That's for another day. But it's hard believed that our focus is not necessarily on the rights of man, but on the rights of the citizen. He also wrote that the boy was not pre-cultural. He was not an artifact. He was acultural. All right, so he was not this link to this mythological primeval man that is more connected with nature. No, because man has always been social. We've always lived in bands and groups and hunted together. If you look at cave paintings, you see large groups of humans. The idea that we could flourish in isolation is not something that is historically supported. And he recognized a rich irony in the way that people wanted to view Victor and the way that they responded upon actually encountering the child before his work with him began. The wealthy people of Paris would pay to come see this child, this noble savage. And Ittar wrote down his thoughts on their reactions. The most brilliant but unreasonable expectations were formed by the people of Paris respecting the savage of Evillon before he arrived. Many curious people anticipated great pleasure in beholding what would be his astonishment at the sight of all the fine things in the capital. On the other hand, many persons, eminent in their superior understanding, forgetting that our organs are less flexible and imitation more difficult in proportion as man is removed from society in the period of his infancy, thought that the education of this individual would be the business of only a few months and that they should very soon hear him make the most striking observations concerning his past manner of life. Instead of this, what do they see? A disgusting slovenly boy affected with spasmodic and frequently 
with convulsive motions, continually balancing himself like some of the animals in the menagerie, biting and scratching those who contradicted him, expressing no kind of affection for those who attended to him, and, in short, indifferent to everybody and paying no regard to anything. And of course he's kind of talking about before he adopted him. Right. And he goes on to talk more about his ideas on the rights of man. Itarba's a great writer, in my opinion. Cast on this globe without physical powers and without innate ideas, unable by himself to obey the constitutional laws of his organization, which call him to first rank the system of being man can only find. In the bosom of society, the eminent station that was destined for him in nature and would be, without the aid of civilization, one of the most feeble and least intelligent of animals, a truth which, although it has often been insisted upon, has not yet been rigorously demonstrated. In the bosom of society, the eminent station that was destined for him, only a man can find that position in society which we have created and perpetuate. A dog cannot walk in and become part of a culture, part of a society, but a man can, because that is his right as a human. But his right is to civilization. His right is to culture. Should he reject it? Should he shun it? Should it be taken from him? There's very little that is innate. The right to personhood comes from integration into society and an understanding of what civilization or culture mean. Right. So the inalienable right, Mm -hmm. the right of being a human, is that admission into culture into the society that's what you're afforded you are not granted dominion over heaven and earth because you were born bipedal or you know (laughs) walking upright you are allowed to come into society interact with other members of your species and carve out your place there that is your right that's what you're entitled to So I think that brings us to the question that they were asking at this time, this important question that we now have a lot of science and theorizing about, of what separates us from beast? So what makes us different than animals? And there are so many things you can look at and so many things that have been proposed over the ages. Of course, people like to say, oh, well, we just have big brains. Mm. That's why we're so smart. Kind of right, in a way. (laughs) If you were to look at absolute brain size, so just the size of the brain, elephants and whales have much larger brains than we do. Well, they're much larger than we are. Exactly. And if you go and look at mice or voles, they have bigger brains relative to size. Than anything does. Right, like the ratio of brain to body is more. But interestingly, in mammals, as they get larger, brains get absolutely larger, but relatively smaller. So in this idea, humans are on top. Our brain is more than seven times larger than the predicted size for a mammal of our size. Are we really getting into a measuring contest to prove that humans are superior to beast? Of course we are. A man wrote this. Of course they did. And also, of course, this doesn't prove anything. Ours are biggest, guys. If you adjust the numbers and tweak it like this, see? Well, as everyone knows, it's not the size that counts. Oh, no, I'm not finishing that sentence. 
It's how you use it. Oh, my God. Okay. But we can look at other things people have proposed over the years. Agriculture. We've been able to grow crops to feed ourselves. Monsanto. Or like we've domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. You can look at something as simple as like ants. And they will actively cultivate fungus. Such as like the leaf cutter ant. And there are termites in Africa that do the same thing. It's called ant fungus mutualism. There are also recent case studies and reports on different primates domesticating dogs and wolves. Shut up. No way. You can very quickly Google oh, and is, is find the video. Video? Oh, yes. my God. I'm so excited. There's a video. <laughs> Several videos. Oh my not God. just one. This is not a one-off. This is in different parts of the you know, different parts of the world. Oh, my God. Are we seeing like a step in evolution? I think there's a monolith in the background. If you like zoom to the bottom right. Doggy. And the bone like goes up in the air. And the dog fetches it, like jumps in out of frame like a frisbee. And there's no spaceship. That's amazing. And also, it's also been theorized that, oh, we use tools. Mm. And of course, disproven time and time again. But it's so good in 2001. Like, it's so convincing. I just, I'm sorry. I can't believe that there's another way. Like, that. Other animals have had that moment where the aforementioned music and the monolith were present and they used a tool. So, of course, primates use tools. They use it for hunting, gathering food, water, cover for rain, self-defense. Really? And we have elephants. Do they have to register it? (laughs) Not in Texas. (laughs) Elephants, they'll create tools using their feet or trunks and they'll use it to like swat flies or to scratch but they'll also use it to plug holes where they found water so that it does not evaporate. Uh, interesting. Dolphins will use sponges to protect their beaks while foraging. And of course, crows are extremely intelligent. And they will make probes out of twigs and wood to collect insects. And they'll also like create their own toys. Seagulls will even use our tools. They'll drop seashells in front of cars in order for them to break open so they can get the food. They drop them in front of moving vehicles? Yeah. You're shitting me. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. No, they don't. Bull. Bull. YouTube it. (laughs) They do that, like, on a regular basis? Yeah. They're going to take over the world. Mine, 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 mine. (laughs) Planet of the seagulls. Mine, 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 mine. That's basically how everything is now anyway. (laughs) It's pretty much the same. And then octopuses. I just listened to Soul of an Octopus. And I enjoyed it, but it was heartwarming, and I generally like to listen to a book and then feel worse about humanity or the state of nature or, you know, the world. So I had mixed feelings about it, but it was a really good book. You should probably check it out. They will gather coconut shells and use them to hide or for shelter. They move them along with them. Like, if they go out hunting, they bring their coconut shells, and then they'll get under the coconut shell if they see anything coming, which is amazing. And they'll also use rocks to build little fences. Or they'll use pieces of, oh my God, an octopus's garden. It's an octopus's garden. Oh my God, it's an octopus's garden. Did you not realize that's what that was? In the shade. That's what that is. I did not. <laughs> I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden. In the shade. In the shade. Oh, Richard Starkey, you old dog, you. Other things that have been mentioned are like cooperation. Cooperation between humanity is what has made us 
move forward away from the animal kingdom. So this is seen in many mammals, such as primates and elephants, but you can look at other creatures that are not as clearly related to us and not as big-brained as us. And see, like, ants that have evolved these really intricate systems of movement with a three-lane, two-way traffic system as they're moving. Interesting. We can't figure out traffic here. Yeah, as they come out of the nest with over 200,000 ants a day in search of food, they split into two groups to form two outgoing lanes, and they return in a single center lane, sometimes carrying more than 30,000 edible grasshoppers or other insects. In birds, when a predator enters the area of a sparrow-like bird called the pied flycatcher... Oh, those are pretty. ...the flycatcher will alert others by screeching loudly. So that's a really risky thing. That's something that is not self-serving. No, it serves a greater good. Like, it serves the community. Right, because you're calling attention to yourself, but you're also calling for help. You're letting everyone else know something's happening, but also you're calling for help. Mm-hmm. And so all these little birds will come and mob the big bird or predator. That's my very favorite. I love to watch it happen. Yeah. <laughs> we watch in the backyard. And another example, this was completely new to me, was that vampire bats have a system of food sharing that helps ensure the survival of a species. So bats will go out and about 8% of the time in a mature bat, they won't find any kind of food and young bats is about a third of the time they won't be Mm -hmm. able to get any food and they have this sharing system where they share blood so of course you might say well you could cheat the system but bats actually will recognize if you if you are a perpetual cheater a perpetual cheater Mm, yeah that's highly frowned upon if you get that kind of reputation (laughs) nobody's gonna share with you that's true in a lot of species, actually. Very true. It's true in a lot of species, especially humans. So, interesting note. Ancients, namely Aristotle, theorized that what separated us from animals was our ability to laugh. And he said that every baby would laugh on the 40th day of their existence. And that was the moment when they got... An angel got its wings? A baby got a soul. Oh, yeah, same thing. And you see this repeated in the Tinkerbell mythology from Disney. Clap, 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 clap. Oh, no, no. That's actually, that's the real one. Oh, the actual book. Right. And so Disney. So not Disney. No, Disney, every time a child laughs for the first time a fairy is born. It's super cute. Aristotle also believed that babies did not have a soul until they laughed, which is interesting to me. Like, they're human, but they don't have a soul. So does laughter separate us from animals? I'm going to guess you're going to say no. It doesn't, because you know what? Rats laugh. You can tickle a rat. You can tickle a rat, but for the purposes of the study that was conducted to see if rats were ticklish, which was a thing. I want grant funding to tickle rats. (laughs) The tickling had to be done in a very specific manner. You don't want any improper rat tickling. No, that cost you funding, which is true and hilarious. And it consisted of rap- rapid initial finger movements across the back with a focus on the neck, followed by rapidly turning the animals over on their backs with vigorous tickling of their ventral surface, belly, followed by release after a few seconds of stimulation. When this was done, rats would emit this super high-pitched, like, kind of barking sound. It doesn't sound like human laughter, which, why would it? 
but super high pitched. It's like, you can look it up. Google it. I'm not laughing for you. You just did. Not again. It was a one time one off. If you want more than that, you're going to have to go find it on your own. This is repeated throughout each tickling session. Even though the tickling was brisk and assertive, care was taken not to frighten the animals because that wouldn't be funny. They induced that rodent laughter every time it was done. And they were able to organize rats into categories and groups, as scientists are wont to do, that kind of organized them by the ones who enjoyed tickling most. Of course. Science. And they did that by, you know, assessing which ones laughed the hardest when they were tickled. I want grant funding for this. Can I just, like, pick another animal and be like, I want to see if this one's ticklish. What I think about is, like, the rat that's getting the ear grown on its back is, like, looking over me like, those motherfuckers. <laughs> like, that's all I can think about is, like, the angry rat who is not in the tickling study. And then you might say, well, it's dancing and expression and arts and things and stuff. If you're that kind of person, I am. But bees dance. They have a specific dance, also noted first by Aristotle. So observant. He was on it, man. And around 330 BC, he noted the famous waggle dance. Can you show me the waggle dance? I can't. I'm not a bee. What if I get you like the blind melon girl outfit? Then I will show you the waggle dance. So they do this to inform other worker bees of the exact location of a food source. Some of these locations can be up to 500 feet from the hive, which is very impressive. And honeybees fly from their colony looking for nectar and pollen. And when they're successful at locating a good food source, they return to their hive and perform their dance in the honeycomb. And the nature specifics choreography if you will tells the other bees where to go find the food source so some people say that it's not dancing and expression it's communication right which leads us to a very slippery slope language language is the thing isn't it language is what separates us from the animals right no one else can talk like we can sort of true but there are some interesting instances of animal communication now, of course, we all know that several large primates like gorillas, chimps, and bonobos have been taught lots of sign language very successfully. Some of them even began to create compound words. I will probably do a whole episode on primate language acquisition, which Jacob will sit here and roll his eyes through. That's the plan. Roll. Yeah. But if we move past that, that's artificial. That's humans teaching another species. That does not tell us about how animals communicate with each other. We can look and see that there are things happening without, you know, flashcards that are... Not cocoa. That are not cocoa. So among the things not cocoa in the world of animal language, we have things like killer whales, orcas, and they learn to speak dolphin. What? It's true. And they socialized a group of killer whales with different dolphins uh, in captivity, bottlenose dolphins specifically. They would transition out of their normal vocal activity in order to mimic the dolphins. But would they communicate with the dolphins? It seemed to cause some reaction within both species, but the orcas were quicker to pick it up and mimic it. Now, there are other studies where dolphins were played whale sounds, and they began talking in whale in their sleep. Just like they say when you learn a second language, you really know it if you dream in it. I thought you were going to say just like in Finding Nemo when Dory speaks whale. I was not. Okay. Fine. Be that way. 
but this was written up and published in the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America. So it's actually That's my favorite journal. Is it? No. I really thought you were serious. <laughs> I'm so mad at you. But it's been published. It's not just like some guy blogging about his pet dolphin, which is another <laughs> episode. <laughs> which is another episode. And I was very interested in this particular animal language, which I had not come across in all of my reading about linguistics for fun, which I actually do. And years of school. There is a tiny little rodent that lives out on the plains in America called a prairie dog. It's an inauspicious name. It's not a dog. It's not a dog. It's not a prairie. It's a rodent. And they're kind of like American meerkats. I would never have guessed that they have one of the most complex call systems in all of nature. Srebotchikov was a researcher who was trying to parse out what these prairie dogs were saying to each other. He noticed that the call whenever humans were approaching was consistently different from the other calls. But there were still significant variations between individual human calls. So whenever any individual human was approaching, they were like, it's a human, and also other information. Really? Yes. So they were describing what they saw? They were. So he decided that he was going to devise a test. And he had four human volunteers walk through the prairie dog village. And all of them were dressed exactly the same except for their shirts. Each volunteer went through four different times. Once in a blue shirt, once yellow, once green, and once gray. So he changed the color of the shirt each time a volunteer walked through. And he found that the calls broke down into groups based on the color of the shirt. So by having multiple people come through each four times, each in different color shirts, he was able to eliminate the different calls for different people and group the calls based on shirt color. That's amazing. I am astounded. Mind blown. Prairie dogs know colors <laughs> and talk about it. And they recognize different people. And he says that he believes they were saying things like essentially, like in the most basic terms, like here comes the tall human in the blue versus here comes the short human in the yellow. Crazy. I cannot believe that. It's amazing. So looking at all these things people have used to differentiate animals from humankind, we've had a lot of misses. Kind of every time we swing, we miss. So there has been a lot of recent research just continuing to look at this. And one psychologist, Thomas Seddendorf, who does a lot of work on separating animals, specifically primates, from humans says that there are two major features that set us apart. Mm -hmm. We have an open-ended ability to imagine and reflect on different situations, and we have a deep-seated drive to link these scenario-building minds that we have together. And so these two big facets really turn things like animal communication into open-ended human language. It turns something like memory into mental time travel. It turns social cognition into theory of the mind. It turns intelligence, problem-solving, into abstract reasoning. And it turns these social traditions and cooperations into cumulative culture. And it turns empathy into morality. So by allowing our language to become more complex and more open-ended 
where it's not just tall human in a blue shirt, but my friend Dave that I went to grammar school with who loves milkshakes. We add depth and meaning to what we're able to communicate, and we also link ourselves with other like-minded, like-thinking beings. Right. So this all starts very early on. So you can look at some of the things we've talked about. Like, if you look in primates, they have some of these very basic ideas. But if you compare them to humans, they really don't get past that two-year-old stage of cognitive development. And so at two years old, and you can see this with our kids, and I see it every day, that's when kids start to fantasize. Mm -hmm. That's when I love this age. Like It's when they start to have an imagination. Oh my God, our two-year-old came in the other day and put a cap from a thermometer on a crayon and told me it was a tutu and the crayon was a ballerina and then started dancing like a ballerina with the crayon. It was amazing. All right, so that is abstract thinking. That is not just noticing something and reporting it. You're going several steps beyond. And so in this idea of creating fantasy and creating scenarios and imagining things happening and taking these perceptions one would have and reasoning out what would happen if this happened. Kind of projecting. You're developing thought. Mm-hmm. This is thinking. It's the, uh, the most basic definition. And you also start to science. No. You hypothesize about things. You say, oh, well, if I do this, this might happen. And you consider the probabilities. You start and, reasoning. Yes. And you can see it like in our kids, like, you know, it should just look right at you. <laughs> while they're doing something they know they're not supposed to mm-hmm. do to gauge your reaction. And that information is going to go in the bank. And they're going to be able to use that for further processing. And eventually, as we have these fantasies and we take on these roles and we create and act out different scenarios and determine their consequences, we start to do this completely 100% mentally. And that's when you get to that more adult thinking All right, so instead of actually conducting the experiment, like actually looking at us and grabbing the cat's tail and seeing if we notice. You can go, oh, in your brain, you can play that scenario Keep it in your brain, like Mm -hmm. we tell our other one. Mm -hmm. And from that, you start to develop abstract thinking. Are you able to combine and recombine these different ideas and then create new ideas? So a completely, you can... Reason through a completely novel situation that you've never experienced without concrete input. And then you can start to develop these extremely complex narratives. You know, like the sentence you gave earlier, it's like that has a lot of information in it. And Mm -hmm. it's like you might even go further. And it's like, and if I go see my friend, we might go get milkshakes. Right. He would like that. And we would have fun. I also like milkshakes. Perhaps I should call him. Exactly. I don't have his new phone number. I guess I should get on Facebook. It's that it's that wandering, that meandering we do through all the possibilities. Yes, exactly. And of course, it's not perfect. You know, we have biases. We of course, miscalculate sometimes. What? I mean, I don't. Thank God. Yeah. That would be terrible. But you, know, you do. I mean, shit, I think I just miscalculated. <laughs> So an important thing that comes up, as I mentioned earlier, is that 
our social cognition, our ideas of what the group is doing, how we can kind of benefit each other, moves forward to the theory of mind, which is our ability to attribute mental states such as beliefs, intents, desires, knowledge, etc. to ourselves, but also to attribute it to other people and to understand that other people's ideas are different than our own. Othering. Is that the psychological cognitive process of othering? Well, understanding that not everyone thinks and feels the way we do. And Wait, being, what? You know, I know, it's, I know, I know. What? I'm still in denial. I prefer to think that everyone just agrees with me, and if I don't talk to them, it must be true. Well, a lot of people do that. <laughs> Maybe this is being disproven this year <laughs> or last year. And so we developed these ideas around this time in childhood. And there's some really famous tests that have been conducted to show this. And I think they're really great examples of it. So you said around this time. You mean around that two-year-old fantasy beginning to have some imagination time? Ish. Like, yeah, like preschool. Okay. Preschool age. Well, this was tested in a pretty well-known test, the unexpected contents test. Researchers asked children around this magical preschool age to watch a video in which a girl was given a box in which there were candies, specifically Smarties. I would have been jazzed. I would have been the only kid that was jazzed about Smarties. No, Smarties are awesome. I love Smarties. They're my favorite. The girl then exited the room on the video. Someone came in and took the Smarties out of the box. Bitch. I know, right? And replaced the contents of the box with pencils. With disappointment is actually what they put in the box. You would have been jazzed. I would have, actually. I was really always stoked to get pencils, paper. Oh, my God. (laughs) You got me a whole pack of paper. (laughs) This is known as the moment when Jacob saw one of my home videos when I was a child. And someone at Christmas had given me a ream of paper. And I was so stoked about it. And it also sounded like I (laughs) I was on the cast of Hee Haw expressing my gratitude. I'm going to have to write them a letter. I'm going to have to write a thank you note for that. It was bad. It was bad. I've tamed the accent, guys. But okay, so we've got a box with Smarties in it. The child leaves the room. Then subterfuge. And then a terrible, terrible person comes (laughs) and takes the candy, I assume gorges themselves on them, and replaces them with pencils. And then the researcher pauses the video and turns to their subject, their preschool child, and says, what do you think the girl expects to find in the box? The child is asked if the other person thinks that there will be Smarties in the box, which they've been shown, or if there will be pencils in the box, which they have not been shown. Right. And so you can see theory of mind developing throughout this age range because the younger children will answer pencils because they don't understand that the girl doesn't know that it's been switched because they know it's been switched. Right, they can't have that idea that this other person has their own thoughts. Right, dramatic irony is wasted on two-year-olds. Right, they're just like, don't get Shakespeare. God. But around like four or five. They say candy. 
and they know that the setup is in place for the rug to be pulled out from under the girl in the video. And they're probably little sadists, and they probably think that's hilarious. That's definitely true. Children are freaking sadists. It's amazing. They're also psychopaths, but that's for another episode. <laughs> oh, I think we did that already. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, the Black Eyed Kids episode. So while we have our first major feature that sets us apart, our open-ended ability to imagine and reflect on different situations, and we're now able to understand with theory of mind that other people can do this too, this is when we can link with other people. This is the other important facet of being a human, that we connect with others. We share ideas. We share thoughts. We also share these possible scenarios. And in this, we can make complex plans. We can work towards common goals. We can worry about what others think. We can strive towards this idea of, of morality. I mean, this shows that we have this huge urge, this drive that's built into us as humans to connect with other humans. Like, you mean by like sitting on our back porch and recording hours of conversation in order to put it on the internet and let people listen to it? You mean discussing and sharing ideas? Yes. Yes. So we're just highly evolved? Of course. <laughs> but that is it. That's the way we are connecting is through language. Well, I'll talk about that all day. Oh my God. Oh my God, y'all. Let's talk about language. I study words. <laughs> language is different from basic communication because it is structured around grammar. And grammar is the way we organize sentences. Grammar is the way that we convey meaning and order units of vocabulary even phonemes, in order to transmit meaning. And Steven Pinker, my favorite human, seriously, like my favorite human. Thanks. Even though he's Canadian, he has oh the best hair. He has good hair. He has good hair. I'm hoping that's what my hair looks like in 30 years. <laughs> Me too. Steven Pinker, my favorite human, says that grammar is just basically the way that we say who or what has done what to whom? Very succinct definition. And our language, our communication functions around this insular body, this structure. It's very basic, continually changing and situational that allows us to layer meaning and create depth. And that's very different from the animal communication that we've examined because you're seeing things like prairie dog language where they're saying, short man in a yellow shirt coming through. They probably say fat man in a yellow shirt because they're mean little prairie dogs. Bastards. Bastards. The thing is, they couldn't say, the man we saw yesterday, he's wearing a different shirt today, and he's coming through. I think he looks agitated. They couldn't say all that. They couldn't say, hey, guys, it's Fred. He's back again. You know how he is, that guy. Like Christopher Walken, apparently. I don't know why I've drifted into this accent. It happens to the best of us. Prairie dogs talk like Christopher Walken, new rule. So we've always been interested in the origins of language. For as long as people have been thinking about the importance of being human, which is basically since we've existed, we've wondered where language came from and how it evolved and what it looked like in its original form. Yeah, there are some 
very interesting experiments that were done millennia ago. So Herodotus writes about the Egyptian pharaoh Samtik, who carried out an experiment trying to figure out the origins of language. I have a feeling this is about to be so unethical. Oh, yeah. So he took children and kept them completely isolated so that they would not hear any words spoken. And he was waiting to hear what words would be said because this must be the original language, the basis for everything like Tarzan had. Oh, my God. No. So he thought if you put two kids in a room, you're basically going to see language genesis all over again. This was a long time ago. I think it's amazing that they're even thinking about this, but terrible experiment. Oh my God, no waivers were signed. This is the capital of no waivers were signed town. The child spoke a word that was similar sounding to bekos, meaning bread, which was a Phrygian word. So they concluded that the Phrygian race must be older than the Egyptians, since this was the first word spoken. Science. Science. No, not science. More science. Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. It's about to be so unethical. In the 13th century. Oh my God, so unethical. I feel it. Those are the dark, dark ages. Okay, tell me more. So he was trying to determine what the natural language origins were. Trying to find out, you know, what did Adam and Eve speak? Okay. So he had young kids raised without human interaction in an attempt to determine this. No waivers were signed. I mean, how would they sign waivers? They don't have a language. So he was trying to determine if they would speak like Hebrew, or Greek, or Latin, or Arabic. He thought this would just naturally pop out. Yeah, he thought maybe they'd even speak the tongue of their parents. Without hearing it. Right, because people did at that time think that you could pass down traits that you gained in life. Like, develop a trait in life and it can be passed on to your kids. Like, you would learn how to dance and do a ballet dance or whatever, and your kid would be a ballerina. It could be. But the experiment was recorded by the monk Salambin de Adam in his chronicles, and he wrote that Frederick encouraged foster mothers and nurses to suckle and bathe and wash the children, but no ways to prattle or speak with them. Have you ever tried to be quiet around a baby? It's pretty hard. It's impossible. But he labored in vain, for the children could not live without clappings of the hands and gestures and gladness of countenance and blandishments. I have no idea what that means. No, it's just saying, like, we cannot live without human interaction. So I'm wondering if that's a euphemistic way of saying they died. No, no. they Like, it could totally be. And Yeah, I am. No, he's just saying, like, this didn't work. This was bullshit. We have to have that human interaction just to live, I think is what he was saying. I guess I'm just thinking of that experiment where the kids were not handled. Oh, in Russia. Yeah. You'd mother Russia. No one mother you. Russia mother you. You die lonely and afraid in your cradle and drink vodka. Write the memoir, etc. Animal language and human language are very different. And there are some key points that really separate it. And they can be broken down... In a number of ways. But for the purposes of this podcast, we are going to be discussing the following. So duality of patterning is a big component of one of the core differences. Right, so that's what you were talking about, that just random combination of sounds and words. Right, and it can be different in different places. It can be culturally transmitted. The word for rabbit in French and the word for rabbit in English are very different. The word for rabbit in Japanese is different. 
and it's all arbitrary. It's all assigned by a culture. Animal sounds are not this way. In order for the sound for, holy shit, there's an eagle coming, is going to be the same until that group evolves, until there's another stage in evolution. And you see this reflected in the second tenet of difference, which is creativity. And we can very easily name something, new words. And then you also have displacement, which is that kind of mental time travel that you were talking about earlier. And we can talk about the remote or the abstract or the imaginary or the past or the future. We can talk about all these things. We even develop grammatical systems to indicate what we're talking about. But language is context-driven or communication is context-driven for animals. They say a thing when they see a thing or when they want a thing. Another feature of communication that's very different between animals and humans is that we have the feature of interchangeability, which means that any gender can use any call or word, regardless of whatever Mr. Pence might think. While animals do have specific gendered calls, there are sounds that only a male can make, there are sounds that only females make, and that's biologically based. To where in humans it's patriarchal based. Oh, right, right. And then we come to arbitrariness, which is the idea that any sound or any symbol can mean anything, so long as it's, you know, agreed upon by our culture. And we have means of making sure that meaning is preserved. Yeah, so culture is such an important element of our language and grammar. Absolutely. And then you have the idea of ambiguity, which is something that's very fascinating. And it means that the same word can mean different things in different contexts to humans. So you can talk about a head. It's like you talk about a person's head. Right. Like the actual physical head, or you could be a head in the game. Or you could be the head of a company, or things could come to a head. You could have a head on your beer. We're not going to go into that one. I see his smirk. <laughs> no. But that same word can mean lots of different things. And animals just don't have that. You don't have that ambiguity in their communication. Now, we're going to discuss a few things. And these are going to be ingredients in moving on to a very large and unwieldy concept later. So take notes. You have your pencil? If you're driving, pull over. Just kidding. <laughs> you're fine. Keep going. Now get your smarty box. Pull your pencil out. <laughs> take notes. Damn it, it's not candy. Oh, it gives me every time. Every time. Every time. So there's a very structural a neurological basis to how we understand language and grammar. So there are two important areas of the brain on the left hemisphere, and that is Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Wernicke? Yeah, old white dudes. So Broca's area is the left posterior inferior frontal gyrus. Doesn't matter. Which is a dance. <laughs> Can I see your left posterior inferior frontal gyrus dance? After the waggle dance. I'm going to need that outfit first. So these are two areas of the brain that were discovered very early on in neurology because when they would be damaged by something like a stroke, you could see very consistent, pronounced problems with language. So in Broca's area, if it's damaged, you'd have Broca's aphasia, which is something also called expressive aphasia. So aphasia is like a difficulty with speech. So in Broca's aphasia, you you could have effortful speech. So you may include, when you're speaking, important words 
and leave out insignificant words like the. Okay, so articles. Yeah, articles are often left out. And you'd also have significant trouble with grammar. Okay, so things could appear out of order. So you have trouble like structuring a sentence. Right, and your comprehension is still completely intact, except in really severe cases. Oh my God, that sounds horrifying. You would have problems if someone was speaking to you and it was a very complex grammatical sentence. So lots of phrases embedded, using lots of recursion, jumbling ideas. Right, and if you like hear a phrase, if something was like very stuck, um, like a rote memorization, you could say that. Interesting. So a great way to remember this, it's how I remembered it in med school, is this is broken language. Broke as aphasia, broken language. So your sentence is very broken up, just main words trying to get your point across. And an interesting thing is, you know there's something wrong. You know it's not coming out how you mean it to sound. Exactly. And so with Wernicke's, which Wernicke's area is the posterior to lateral sulcus left in the left hemisphere. Doesn't matter. Not Wernicke's a area is in the back. So this is a receptive aphasia. And so this individual can is unable to understand language in its spoken or written form, even though they can speak using grammar, syntax, appropriate rate, and intonation. Wow. They really have trouble expressing themselves through meaningfully through speech. So there's a loss of words. So the way you remember this one, if you're in med school, is they have a weird speech. They just kind of make up words. Word salad. Word salad, yeah. But it might come out in a very grammatical way where you have an intact structure with arbitrary vocabulary. Right, if you're passively listening, you might go like, oh, he's speaking German. Oh, so it won't even have the proper form. Like, it won't even be English. It's not like English word salad. It's just like jumble that comes out. It could be either or. Both. Or well, both. Kind of combination I of the two. hate either or both. Welcome to medicine. <laughs> An interesting part of this is that they are unaware of the problem. They don't know it's happening. They're talking to you and like, and you're expected to respond. And they're like, what the hell is this dude's problem? I said, and he's looking at me like I have two heads. Yes. So in the instance of broke as aphasia, we see that cognition has been preserved while language is broken. Wernicke's, the cognition is a little more jumbled. We have problems with input, but it's such a related disorder. And it really does go a long way to proving that there's a language mechanism housed in the physical structure of the brain. Yes, on a neuro, it is there. A neuroanatomical level, we have mechanisms in place that allow us to either interpret language, which stays intact with brokas, or generate language, which doesn't stay intact with either of them. So that's important. Cognition is sound while language is disrupted. Correct. Okay, so we see that cognition and intelligence can be preserved while language deteriorates. And I guess my question now is, can language be preserved separate from intelligence or cognition? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, he has several genetic disorders that could be used to typify that. One would be like Williams syndrome. And these kiddos are elfin-like. Go on. I didn't create that term. Okay. (laughs) And so they have this genetic syndrome, which is a deletion on chromosome 26. So they have this distinctive appearance. Which is like, tell me. Like an elf. 
<laughs> what does that mean? Like adorable? They are. Okay. They're adorable. <laughs> They're adorable. They're also super sweet. They have a starry eye appearance of their iris. But they also do have some developmental delays. They have some visuospatial impairments and cardiovascular problems. But one of the main features of this is that they have a cocktail party type personality. <laughs> well, doesn't sound so bad. So they're really into martinis. No. Oh. Um, so they're like they're super friendly. They're super sweet kids. Of course, I just I know the kids. <laughs> they are very chatty, loquacious. They have a very high verbal relative to their general IQ. Okay. And they're very sociable. So they will tell you all about it. Oh, good. I'm so glad these kids exist. <laughs> they really are awesome kids. But so it's a kid that has does have impaired cognition, impaired intelligence, but has a preserved verbal intelligence. So Steven Pinker has also written about kids with Williams syndrome and... I read his book, The Language Instinct, this week. And if you've not read it, you should probably pause. Pack up the tome. It's, yeah, it's it's a lot of book. But it, there's so much good information. But first of all, he says that kids who have Williams Syndrome kind of look like Mick Jagger. Elfin. <laughs> I think it's a really accurate description. Because Mick Jagger's pretty. But he also included some writing samples from these kids. And what I think is amazing is there's like a drawing from a teen with Williamson syndrome displayed beside her write-up about what is in the picture. And it's hard to understand the drawing without, you know, her saying that's the head, that's the trunk, that's the ear. It's extremely rudimentary. Yeah, almost to where it's just like a few lines, like something a three or four-year-old might draw. But then her description is amazing. What an elephant is, is one of the animals. And what an elephant does, it lives in the jungle. It can also live in the zoo. And what it has, it has long gray ears, fan ears, ears that can blow in the wind. It has a long trunk that can pick up grass or pick up hay. If they're in a bad mood, it can be terrible. If the elephant gets mad, it could stomp. It could charge. Sometimes elephants can charge. They have big, long tusks. They can damage a car. It could be dangerous. When they're in a pinch... When they're in a bad mood, it can be terrible. You don't want an elephant as a pet. You want a cat or a dog or a bird. Which is such a great story, right? You're transported. I right. was transported. So this is someone that's, that's mentally disabled, but relatively has a huge verbal IQ. Right. I mean, they, look at that. Their IQs are usually around 50. They have a innate musical ability, usually, that can be drawn out very easily. They also tell these wonderful stories. And in further reading about kids with Williams, they test them using pictures where there are like three pictures in order. And they compare their writing samples to kids with Downs around the same age. And the amount of colorful language and the automatopoeia words and explanations and all of this really articulate, high-level verbal rendering of these stories compared to someone around the same age with the same IQ with a different disorder is remarkable. And Pinker goes on to say that their most endearing quality is that they love big words, which I think sounds like magic. Of course he thinks that. I think that too. But he says like, if you ask a kid with Williams to name 
some animals. Your neuronormative kid will list like cow, pig, chicken, dog, cat. But if you ask a kid with Williams, they'll say... Okapi. Okapi, Ibex. Unicorn. Unicorn. Not a real animal. They say it. (laughs) And he also says... Doesn't matter. One of particular interest to a paleontologist would be the Brontosaurus Rex. Oh, that's real. I know. Not just a story. But so I find these kids charming. And I also find them very interesting because they're an example of how cognition can be impaired while verbal ability remains excessively high. Like these kids are very good storytellers and you know that's a value that I support, endorse, and admire. Gotta love a loquacious kid. I see some projection. (laughs) I think they're charming. Okay, so, so far we've established that you can have impaired language with preserved cognition. You can have impaired cognition with preserved language. Hold on to that thought. Now we're going to explore the idea of what happens when a group of people who've previously been language deprived or prelingual all get put in a mishmash pot together. It sounds like the concept for a new NBC show. No, no, it's not. At a school in Managua, Nicaragua, deaf children are speaking a new language entirely their own, which is nonetheless remarkable in similarities to the world's other languages. Researchers studying these similarities suggest that, in fact, the children give language its most fundamental universal features just by the way they learn it. So these are deaf kids? Mm-hmm. And do they have any, like, sign language before this? Most of these kids were in homes with hearing parents who were not exposing them to any kind of sign language at all. And they, of course, had kind of developed a pantomime gesture system to get by with their parents, usually just kind of rudimentary. And so they took a group of all of these kids from kind of far-flung areas, rural areas in Nicaragua, and put them all in a school together. And an amazing thing started happening. Kids were not liking the formal instruction, but they'd watch them when they got together on their own. And they started combining their sort of rudimentary, self-generated gesture systems that they'd been using with their parents and creating a sort of standardized language that was not being taught by instructors. So they were creating a set of rules? Loosely. Now, an interesting thing occurred when the next group of students came into the school and there was this pre-existing system of communication. When younger kids came into the school and saw that, they began to adopt it quickly. However, they formalized it and standardized it in ways that the older speakers were not and they became more fluent in their signing than their predecessors. So in a, not even a full generation, but in a new class, you could see this language evolving and adopting a more standardized form. And did they add to it as well? They did, but it all fell around this structure that the older students were adhering to, but that the younger students seemed to internalize more quickly and transmit among themselves more easily. This is remarkable because this is a real-time example of how pigeons and creoles work. Those are linguistic phenomena that occur when great numbers of people from different backgrounds are displaced or moved or immigrate to a new area. In a first generation, you have a working language called a pigeon, 
P-I-D-G-I-N. Not the bird. Not the one that wants to drive the bus. And that system is a shorthand that's used for trade and basic interaction that kind of combines elements of different people's backgrounds and different people's native language or first language in order to support this new community. Now, within a generation, rules and structures are implemented by children who've grown up exposed to this as a first language. And you can see these languages becoming formalized. However, it was always theoretical until we watched these kids in the Nicaraguan deaf school create the sign language. And we could actually see the genesis of language in action. What a fantastic discovery. It's amazing. So they were able to actually watch in real time language be created. Right. And you didn't even have to wait for the next generation of speakers. You could wait for the next class. And so it was accelerated even. And Singas, one of the instructors there and researchers who's been observing this all happening, says, we're seeing evolution in action. But what's evolving here isn't an organism. It's a language system. Each wave of children that enters the community develops NSL further, that's Nicaraguan Sign Language, making it more complex and versatile and signing with greater speed and fluidity. They go on to say that kids had their radar out from the beginning. They're looking for language-like information in the world. And they're ready to process that information in a specific way. You don't need to teach children language any more than you need to teach them to walk. So through all this, it seems that there is a very innate, built-in mechanism for us to have language, but language like we do. Language that is expressive and helps us connect with other people, and has very important structure. Right, and that structure helps us convey meaning in a systematized way that can be readily understood by our audience. You have to have a community in order for language to be effective, unless you're trying to make people not understand it. Like, if you're coding your journal, or... Pig Latin. Speaking pig Latin to your friend is exactly what I was going to say. But so we see that language is separate from cognition. We see that it is something we all tune into, want, will try to help develop, will internalize quickly, and importantly, standardize quickly. And that leads us to one of the more complex concepts that we're going to deal with maybe ever. Set my favorite garden gnome. You have a favorite garden gnome? It's my favorite garden gnome, Gnome Chomsky, is the father of the theory of universal grammar and so many other things. But gnome, I call him gnome because we're friends, gnome theorized that there was a system of categories, mechanisms, and constraints that are shared by all human language that should be considered innate. It's built in. It's there. It's there for the taking. And regardless of what our specific structure of language is, whether we are subject, verb, object, or object, verb, subject, or however we might arrange our sentences. So Germanic or romantic, et cetera. Et cetera. We all understand those parts. Now, over top of this instinctual structure, we have a lot of plasticity, which allows us to move among groups. We can learn more than one language. And plasticity is another word for flexibility, especially when referring to like neurocognitive processes. Right. So we have an underlying structure, but we can dress it up any way we want, is essentially how we should think about this. 
Now, what is the evidence specific to language learners that allows us to extrapolate this kind of theory? Language learners are children, generally. When they're picking up their first language, usually people are children. And what we can see in children is a very quick internalization of grammar. I don't mean school marm grammar. I mean order that allows us to convey meaning. How do we know kids do this? Because we hear it. Right. So you'll hear kids say things like, I think that, or him wanted, or hold you instead of hold me, thinked instead of thought, or mouses instead of mice. Now, traditionally, before the event, as Noam Chomsky's proffering of universal grammar has come to be known in linguistic and psychoanalytic circles. Because it basically recreated the field. Absolutely. He's amazing. He's dense. He's highly controversial. He's intense. He's Noam Chomsky. He's like if Bernie Sanders was a, a linguist. linguist. <laughs> yes. He yes. looks kind of like him. Yes. He's that intense about everything. Yes. He was really good looking 50 years ago. Right. Shockingly. And you're like, really? You'd be um, like, yeah, I'd go to that protest. Yes, I would. So before the event... We're just going to term it that way. We had this idea that children learn language by hearing, by exposure. It was all culturally transmitted. There was, it was all nurture, no nature. And that's not been completely disproven. Bullshit it hasn't. We'll fight later. But because you hear kids universally making these grammatical errors that we can be assured that no adult speaker has made, and we can eliminate for that on a case-by-case basis. We can go through and listen to their you know, caregiver speech patterns and knock out things and find these artifacts, misapplications of grammatical rules, pluralization, or tense change, or subject-object agreement, subject-verb agreement. We know they're not hearing it, so where are they getting it? Unless it is coming from a little fairy that comes in the night and sprinkles them with wordifying knowledge, it's already in their brain. Unless you have secretly been saying, I think that, in front of our six-year-old. I may have been. Don't do that. We've talked about it. It's an experiment. (laughs) Stop it. So in looking at the way language learners express their knowledge of grammar, we can see they're not imitating the mistakes they've heard. They're making their own mistakes by applying these rules to words. They can't tell you what they do to a word to make it plural when they're four, but they can do it. And you can test kids as young as three with the WUG test. The what test? The WUG test. What's that? You say, this is a WUG. Point something. If I have two, or you grab a second one, and you say, I have two, and the kid will go, WUGS, and add an S. It's a word they've never encountered before. They're applying a rule that they've not been formally instructed upon. So there's something innate about this grammar. Yes. This is the theory. This is the event. It's super interesting, and I'm... There are plenty of detractors to it. From my perspective, I think there definitely is something akin to universal grammar. I think it has a lot of weight to it. But I hate anything that's set in stone. That's like it has to be one way or it's nothing. Like there still is a component of language acquisition that is related to human interaction. Well, yeah, that's the plasticity overlying the structure. Because right. we're programmed to learn it. We're programmed to acquire it. Right? We need to 
we function better when we are acculturated into our home group quicker and more easily than if we had to struggle through coming here all speaking German. I mean, you could even look at the differences between babies' cries. I think, I think I've mentioned this before. Like, they have different accents. Yes. I remember the day I found this out. I thought this was the most interesting thing in the world. And this is from birth, right? Yeah, from birth. Because you hear language whenever you were in utero. Another great wrestling name. In utero? Yeah. It's a Nirvana album. <laughs> True. So, in the spirit of combining nature and nurture and not making anything a hard and fast rule, we have the critical... Period hypothesis. Sounds critical. It is. It states that the first few years of life constitute the time during which language develops readily, and after which, sometime between five and puberty, language acquisition is much more difficult and ultimately less successful. So there's a time when our brain is primed to absorb and understand this language our first language yes and the idea was popularized by Lineberg in 1967 and he argued that the hypothesis was based on evidence that children who experience brain injury early in life develop far better language skills than adults with similar injuries well and you can look at these examples of feral kids you know if they didn't have other intellectual disabilities you know they're missing out on that critical period of language development is why they have so much trouble learning a language. And then you have the counterexample, which would be like the uh, savage girl of Champagne or whatever. Was it savage girl? Yeah. Okay. Couldn't remember savage or wild. You know, they all run together. They all run together after a while. But she obviously had acquired a first language. And so she was able to pretty readily pick up French and tell a great story. About being painted black and sold into slavery. Really? That's amazing. Apparently. <laughs> it's a thing. Right. Her biography was written at the time by townspeak folk. So the ideas of a universal grammar can be tied in to our ideas of morality, which is another thing that can separate humans from the beast. Right. And good old gnome, my favorite garden gnome, theorized that these structures could be wiring us for our understandings of power, our understandings of obedience, morality, all sorts of things. This is something, if we come here programmed to fall in line and speak the language, we're going to go further than if we don't. It's an evolutionary advantage to seek to fit into that pre-existing, culturally established moral code. Right, and anything that... Gives us an advantage. We're going to keep. We're going to keep and we're going to cultivate. And so Mark Hauser, a psychologist, writes about this. And he says that yeah, there might be something like a universal moral grammar. You know, a set of principles that every human is born with. You know, a toolkit for building possible moral systems. You know, people might say like, oh, well, you know, but everyone's morals are different. There's no such thing as universal morality. This was something that was very popular in the 20s and 30s. And interestingly enough, people use the theory of relativity... Like the Einstein one? ...as an argument against this. Hmm. Obviously, it was wrong. I think that's like taking things out of context. For sure. But just an interesting point. 
It's like pulling one verse out of the Bible. He was like pulling one verse out of Einstein. You know, in Chomsky and Linguistics, they might this variation at some level be explained by certain common principles of universal grammar. These ideas that we have, different ideas of morality around the world, but there's a basic building block there. An underlying structure on which we dress up in little hats and trot out into reality. Yeah. Is there this universal principle that dictates how we think about the nature of harming and helping others and each culture having that freedom, just like with language, to dictate who is harmed and who is helped? So you can take this into terrible ideas like the Nazis as just a general idea. They were the ones that were (laughs) using Einstein. Nazis should never use Einstein. That should not be allowed. Everyone's interpreting these ideas that we're born with in different ways. That's why there's a difference. There's like a difference in language. But there are some basic building blocks. And a classic example of this is the train switch. Oh, like the there's a train coming and you can pull the switch and it kills the one guy or you don't pull it and it kills 17 people. Right. And... Most people, a statistically significant amount of people, are going to choose harming the one person instead of the 17. Right. Why is that? Because it does our group more good to have more people. Right. And we are built to form these groups, to move towards these groups being successful. We've not only evolved to have our personal self move forward. Because physically, we're terrible. <laughs> you know, like, Speak for yourself, I'm yes, fabulous. I, know, oh. I, <laughs> I mean, we have nothing against like apes. I mean, they could just destroy us. No, but, they're so strong. Yeah, but our intellectual ability and our way, the way that we work in groups is what sets us apart. So, I mean, we've talked about this sort of enlightened, air quotes, idea of feral children and these beasts that emerge from the woods not knowing how to speak. But have we, in modern memory, encountered a child that would qualify by like being separated from humanity, that has been isolated to the point of being differently developed and struggling with language or morality or understanding theory of mind... Can we see this play out? Unfortunately, we do. So this is a case study of a young girl named Jeannie. Was that a real name? No, 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 no. It was a reference to her coming out of a bottle. Like not as a child? Like coming out fully formed kind of thing? Kind of. So she was born in Arcadia, California in 1957. Eventually, they moved to Temple City, California. So she was born to a flight mechanic who had some severe anger and attachment issues. And her mother, who had a prior head injury and was nearly blind and had a lot of neurological problems. The father just seemed to hate children and more than anything, hated noise. He had this just really pathological hatred of noise. They ended up having four children. The first two died very early on to what can definitely be considered related to inept care. He kept the mother 
kind of locked in the house, would not let her leave. Eventually. This sounds like a fairy tale. It's a terrible story. Like the beginning of, like, locked in a tower, the children, like. It, it almost is, in a way, the setup. But unfortunately, it's true. So Jeannie was born healthy, but she did have congenital hip dysplasia and had to wear a splint that caused her to walk late. And now, so this dad, who has some serious psychological issues, felt that she must be, quote, retarded and refused to interact with her. It would not let her mother or brother interact with her either. She had a brother? Who was, like, still around and alive? Yeah, he was a little older. He was a little older. He had some terrible abuse as well. So people are unsure of her early development. And it seems that from some early pediatric notes, she may have been on track. But by 11 months, she did start to show some signs of malnutrition. So just in knowing that there are records, it means that she was being brought in for appointments and kind of looked after a little, right? She was, especially early on. But whenever Jeannie was 20 months old, her grandmother died of a hit and run. Her brother was walking with the grandmother, and so he got blamed for her death. And the truck driver, oh, by the father, the truck (laughs) driver who hit the grandmother only received probation. And this really set the father off. He began to feel that society had failed them. He needed to protect his family. So they moved into his mother's house. The family lived downstairs, often sleeping in the living room. Jeannie was kept upstairs in a locked room. During the daytime, for about 13 hours, Jeannie's father tied her to a child's toilet in a makeshift harness designed to function as a straitjacket. Do you ever just want to punch a guy in the throat? No, this is a terrible story. At night, he usually tied her into a sleeping bag or placed her in a crib with a metal screen covering. Her arms and legs were immobilized, but sometimes she was even left on the child's toilet overnight. He'd often beat her if she made any noise and would not let anyone speak to her. He even, if he heard her making noise, would go to the door and make barking and growling noises. And sometimes he would do this to her face and bare his teeth. And according to the mother, he even grew his fingernails out so he could scratch her. The fuck? Right. Some psychologists believe he may have even viewed himself as like a guard dog for her. Do you ever just want to punch a guy in the throat? Just as hard as you can. Does it ever happen to you? Too often. <laughs> so Jeannie learned to make no noise. There would be no conversations in the house. There was nothing for her to hear. There was no TV or radio on. They would only feed her baby food and cereal, occasional egg, a few other things. When she was a baby? No. How long did this go on? When did the wolves come? When did she go to nature? Please, God, let her go to nature. (laughs) She's not going to nature. Oh, no. Through this time, Jeannie's father never let anyone else in the house, only allowing his son to go to and from school The son was allowed to go to school? That's it. He would have to come straight home. But he went to school. That had to seem like Disneyland. Right. But he was extremely strict. He would often, he was very abusive to everyone in the household. He would often sit in the living room with a shotgun in his lap. Shut up. This is like definition of a tyrant. He often stated that Jeannie was, again, mentally retarded and would die by age of 12. And promise that yeah, (laughs) you feed her gruel and keep her tied to a potty chair and in a cage. Yeah, yeah, you're right. 
Good job. Right. Well, so he did promise that she should survive past this age, he would allow his wife to seek outside assistance for her. But whenever Jeannie turned 12, he didn't. What a fucking dick. Her, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's crude and awful. But my God. Her mother does nothing for another year and a half and eventually gets tired of it. They have a huge, violent fight. And she eventually walks out on the dad and takes Jeannie with her. Brave step. Yeah, finally does something, thankfully. So eventually, remember, she's blind, has several neurological problems. She tries to apply for disability and walks into the social services office where the workers see the odd state that Jeannie is in. She looks to be you know, eight, nine, something like that. Just a young girl. But she said she'd survive past 12. You're right. She'd been extremely malnourished. She was walking with oh. this very odd gait. And they went and talked to the mom, tried to figure out what was going on, and eventually called the police. Good job. And she was brought to the hospital. So the parents were arrested. Good. The father, before a court appearance for child abuse charges, did kill himself by gunshot. Oh, my God. He could not be more infuriating. Like, every single thing he's done has just made me so angry. You do this intentionally to your entire family for years, and then you are too chicken shit. I'm sorry. I'm being very crude. You're too chicken shit to make your court appearance. You can't be. You can't tolerate being held accountable. Oh, well, he leaves two suicide notes. Two. One to his son, which says, be a good boy. I love you. And one directed at the police, which what it says is conflicted. But some people say it says the world will never understand. No, we won't. Good job. Again, good job. Self-fulfilling prophecy is an amazing thing. But Jeannie was very malnourished. She was 13 and a half years old. She only weighed 59 pounds. Our six-year-old weighs that much. Not really, but close. And she had two full sets of teeth. What does that mean? They never pulled her baby teeth. And she couldn't. You ever want to punch a guy in the throat? She had thick calluses and bruising from the restraints she was kept in. On testing, she had normal vision but could not focus beyond 10 feet. She never had anything to look at. Exactly. It's related to like the dark room she was kept in. She had Poor gross motor skills could barely stand or extend her limbs. She didn't even know how to chew. Because she'd been fed baby food. It was difficult to determine her cognitive age, but they estimated about 13 months old. So pre-verbal. And she was 13. Years old. But on interacting with her, they found that she was very interested in new objects, new people, New sounds. Often she would approach and walk with complete strangers, having difficulty distinguishing between different people. Yeah, I mean, her facial recognition ability has to be just so non-existent. Well, she'd never seen anybody else. She never even had to differentiate between people. Why would you learn to do that? Like, why would your body plug that in, I guess, if you don't have to do it? She had no idea of situational awareness. What does that mean? Well, so, I mean, it's almost like what we were talking about earlier. She couldn't understand what was going on, how she related to it. She was in a primate stage. She was before two years old. She would make good eye contact and she would respond to facial expressions, but she had no body language or expressions of her own. 
Linguist later discerned that in January of 1971, she had understood her own name, names of a few others, and around 15 to 20 words. Oh my god, 15 to 20 words. That is... It's nothing. Less than what a two-year-old would understand. And her active verb vocab at the time consisted of two phrases. Stop it. Oh no. And no more. Oh god. This may be the saddest thing I've ever heard. It's terrible. You know, they couldn't even determine the amount of language she had before then. This is after she'd been interacting with people for a while. So, you know, they knew that she'd never acquired a first language. And this is a girl living in 20th century America. And so a lot of people got involved with her. She became a very famous case study at the time. Like Victor. Right. And this was the time that... Noam Chomsky was doing his thing. The event. The event was occurring. And linguists and abuse specialists got on board. Everybody wants to study. Right. They saw this as a golden opportunity. Well, I mean, think about the timing. We're about to enter the satanic panic. Everybody's becoming aware of child abuse and its lasting effects. We have Noam in the garden doing his thing. We have another phase of anthropological study which is focusing on like ethnographic multidisciplinary understandings of culture and cultural relativism and you have such growth in psychology we're doing away with behavioralism we're beginning to have a more humanist perspective and so of course of course we want to study her right she was a prime example of someone that had missed that critical period Oh, yes. So does she still have universal grammar? What are the effects of this terrible isolation and child abuse that she's had? So through studying her, I mean, they very easily could determine that she was not autistic. Right, because she's responding to facial expressions. Right. She is making eye contact. She's interested in new things. She doesn't have those behavioral defense mechanisms. Now, interestingly, a lot of people who review Victor's case history do believe that he might have been autistic. He may have been. I I think a lot of the things line up. And his progress, if that is true, is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, and you can see amazing progress like that today with appropriate, like, therapy. Which is in part based on Itar's work. True. So, Jeannie made amazing progress with the help of this team. For every calendar year after her rescue, she would gain another year of developmental progress. She became more responsive to other people. She formed relationships. She att- attempted to mimic speech sounds and developed exceptional nonverbal communication. But so her vocabulary and the speed that she was it was expanding was way more than anyone could have anticipated. She could name objects. She could have discussions. She mastered certain principles of grammar. But is she speaking fluently or is it? No. Okay. She's definitely having difficulty with this, with using this basic grammar. Her receptive comprehension was way ahead of what she could produce. Oh, Jacob. This sounds like Broca's. Well, so whenever they studied her, they found out she was very, very right brain dominant so if you remember broken wernicke's area are on the left left hemisphere of the brain and so in the studies they were concerned that she might have even had kind of atrophy 
of the left hemisphere oh, of the brain. Atrophy, like from lack of use. Exactly. Not physical damage, not like blunt force trauma. Right. So we mentioned previously that you can have like this toxic environment to where being raised in a environment such as this. A state of deprivation. You will literally have changes to your brain. And so they think that by having that part of her brain completely unstimulated and being in a state of deprivation, malnutrition and neglect for so long, it's possible that her system's kind of rerouted and we're like, oh, we're not using this. We're going to go over here and make sure the stuff you need to survive stays intact. Right. Like she did have some classic things you see with kids in this terrible states, you know, like hoarding things, being very possessive. Uh, being very hard to form relationships, but then when you form them, they're being very deep and kind of protective. Right, and that hoarding is another symptom of neglect and being deprived, where it's scarcity. Like, you see that in animals preparing for the winter or whatever. It's like, oh, they may not feed me tomorrow. I better save this. Just at a very basic level, right? Right, so if you try to look at this through, like, Chomsky's theories... You can say, oh, well, she never managed these rudiments of grammar, which definitely ties into Chomsky's theories, and that her syntactic abilities had been thwarted by her development, as he would also say. But if grammar isn't born, why was she not able to have this? So by looking at her brain development and the literal atrophy the little not growth the shrinking of the areas of the brain that would be used for this you have an explanation what the underlying structure would do in this instance or in really any instance where a child is acquiring a first language is give us a system for organizing messages we hear and a desire to mimic them in order to better communicate our wants needs and ideas so if she is not getting any input that's not being stimulated and it It, goes away it goes away she has nothing to organize she is not forming the muscle memory the neuro memory of words because there is absolutely no input it's not a failure of the theory in my opinion no it's not it only it helps prove it in a way And one linguist that worked with her said, does language make us human? That's a tough question. It's possible to know very little language and still be fully human to love, form relationships, engage with the world. And that's back to the idea of joy. But Jeannie definitely engaged with the world. She could draw in ways you would know exactly what she was communicating. But this linguist and the others working with her really dropped the ball. There was a lot of infighting. There were a lot of problems. They argued. They argued. She wound up in several foster homes. There was a lot of legal battles. And she had severe regression, going almost back to where she was beforehand. There were suits and countersuits, and people were publicly shaming each other. And after spending all this time with her and developing relationships and showing her that people could love her and that she could learn language and learn about the world and use it, use it to communicate and giving it a purpose and connect with other people right they failed her right cause she lived with one of the researchers for four years yes yes 
and was brought into their home and established a sense of security. And when funding was pulled, that security was pulled as well. Well, she was pulled not just due to the funding, but due to suits by her mother. Oh, no. But that just goes into a whole other thing. So in this case, you can see where a person, just like in the other cases of feral children, where this kid that obviously has serious problems and needs help is affected by that scientific agenda that's there. We yeah. need to prove that Noam Chomsky's right. We need to prove the critical period. We need to prove or we need to disprove the critical period, I guess, is actually what they were trying to do. But, you know, it's one thing to put it on paper. It's another thing to put it on a person. She bore the weight of our ideas. Right. And while she may have proven that there may be a critical period for language, she also proved that there is not a critical period for that connection and for that socialization, and for what humanity is really about. The need to feel close to other people, the need to connect and communicate our ideas, wants, needs, dreams, stories. So the idea that Jeannie was returned to the wild by her isolation, by not being with others, that she was returning to this primeval state of knowledge and not just the victim of terrible child abuse and isolation that she was just returning to nature that is just a story yeah that's just a story society 13 podcast network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen.